You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. To the projection booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Spencer Parsons. Hello. And making her debut in the booth is Ms. Gianna D'Amelio. Hello. Thank you for having me. On this episode, we are looking at Aleski Gehrman's Kristalayov My Car. Released in 1998, the film is set in 1953 and set against Stalin's doctor's plot and the death of Stalin himself. The film centers on General Klinsky, a huge man with a penchant for cigars and cognac-laced tea, who is doomed to be replaced by a double who will give the right answers during his inevitable show trial. The film is a chaotic ride that was lambasted upon its initial screening at Cannes. We will be spoiling the film, or... Really, it might be good to listen to this before you dive into this one. It's one of those type of movies. As with a few films this month, this is a request from one of our Patreon donors. If you want to request a film for us to cover, be sure to visit patreon.com slash projection booth, where you can become a donor. And at our projectionist manager or regional manager tiers, you can request a film. Gianna, when was the first time you saw Krusta Lay Off My Car and what did you think? I first saw the film in January 2018. A friend had told me that they were working on restoring a film by the director of Hard to Be a God, which I had seen and which had just like ruined a whole week of my life because it's a very brutal film, um, but which I thought was incredible and groundbreaking. And I had just, I had never seen any film as dedicated to world building as Hard to Be a God. 
And I wanted to see how the director would bring his immersive approach to a more recent period, the 1950s in this case, uh, which I hoped would be much cleaner. <laughs> um, so I, I put the film on when I was taking a break from unpacking boxes. I had just moved and I'm a compulsive mover. I love changing countries and jobs, but it means that all my memories are really remote from one another. There's very little continuity. It's like everything is taking place in different lives rather than different years. And that's that's relevant because when I was sitting among my boxes and I was watching Krusty off my car, I had this really weird sensation. It was like someone had slipped the wrong tape into my memory. And I was in this other world. I was in these intimate spaces and I didn't get the references. I didn't know what was going on. I only had access to this really grainy bootleg with terrible subtitles, but I was having these really familiar emotional responses to memory. I was having longing and loss and revulsion and embarrassment in just in a way that I'd never experienced with cinema before. And when the film finished, I got, I got really frustrated, actually. I got really indignant. I had become so invested in something that I didn't understand. And I was like, I was going to do something about it. I was going to get to the bottom of what had been giving me these feelings. And this led me down a long multi-year rabbit hole of research. And <laughs> along the way, I fell in love with German's earlier work. And the more interviews I read, the more exciting and increasingly relevant I found his overarching project to be. I'm so glad you're on this show because this movie requires a lot of research, I feel. I don't think anyone needs to do what I did. I don't think any research is necessary to get something profound from a German film. I think what's necessary is just like thick skin and curiosity. You have to be curious about the real conditions of life in an area of the world that's been othered and obscured by propaganda on both sides. And you also have to be curious about, about the potential of cinema, of what it can do and what its goals can be. German, he directed five feature films and each one sort of breaks ground in establishing cinema as this purveyor of collective memory, of memory of a people, not a person. And he does this to, to challenge the viewer, to challenge us about how we interpret the past and where we're heading in the present. But it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortably immersive. German wants you to stay active, stay critical in this slurry of other people's memories. You're going to come face to face with raw emotions and the real conditions of life in this toxic um, environment of totalitarianism without any cinematic cushioning without any exposition without any accommodation so on the one hand he's doing this, this weird new project with cinema that's really immersive and at the same time though i feel like his films really stand on their own as works of art in this really traditionally cinematic way I, they have this internal language of recurring symbols and sounds and gestures and you can see you can see specific motifs like recur throughout all of his films and devolve in these interesting ways starting with his film that's set before the purges and going all the way to Hard to Be a God, which is an allegory of Putin's Russia, you see all these measures of humanity really devolve. And it's a cineast's dream, really, and it has yet to be explored in English. And Spencer, how about you? Is this a first-time watch? Uh, yeah, the first time I saw it was last night, and then I watched it a second time this morning. And you know, by the end of the first watch, this is going to sound very strange, but I, I promise this comment will start to make more sense after we've talked about it a bit. This is my new Christmas Day movie. And I know that's got to sound utterly bizarre, but there's something about the winter and also the generosity of the film, ultimately, however grim 
horrifying. <laughs> Some of it really is. It's an immensely generous movie. And to your point, Gianna, this, this is a film that does one of the rare things that I really look for in movies that I, I, I wish that there was more of. While it is a period piece, it's a period piece set in this sort of the, the real world of, of the filmmakers. And I, I have this complaint that when you speak of world building, that the real world is not built nearly so well as Middle Earth in a Peter Jackson movie. And I want my real world in a movie to have been as well built or at least as well observed as, you know, one of these fantasy worlds that gets all kinds of attention. And I feel like our real world so seldom gets the kind of attention that we lavish upon a superhero universe or something that really, quite frankly, and I'll just be that asshole right now, is not worth that kind of trouble, whereas our real world is worth that kind of trouble. And so this, this for me, you know, this film was a tonic. It was, uh, you know, like a wonderful sort of wake up and a reminder of what cinema can be when... To be quite honest, I've, I've, I've been a little bit dyspeptic lately. So this, this was great. This was a first time watch for me. I had bought the Blu-ray. I think Arrow was having a sale and I just stocked up on a bunch of stuff that I had on my, I really should watch this list. And I know that friend of the show, Daniel Bird had something to do with it. He had a whole lot to do with it. He was one of the producers of the disc. He did one of the uh, audio commentaries. So fully invested in that. And, you know, I like to support friends when they do projects. So I had it sitting over on the shelf. And then, as I said, this was a request that came through. And I said, all right, let's do it up. And this took me back to that world of Hard to Be a God, which I had experienced. Uh, it didn't ruin my week like it did yours, Jan, but it fucks you up. And this movie, I, I can't say it fucked me up, but it was just a, man, you forget how Gehrman just immerses you in these places and how chaotic everything is and how stuffed the frame is especially in interior shots it's like you could go mad trying to discern all the things that are on screen and you know talking about uh, motifs that come up i mean the bust of stalin that runs through this is everywhere the amount of things that are on screen that you're trying to parse as the camera is following around our main character throughout so much of this film y you feel almost carsick as you're watching this. It's just, it takes you through and, and you're like, Hey, can you pause for a second? Can you like, just stop for one minute on one thing? <laughs> but he is relentless. Just die. You know, you dive into this world. It, it grabs you and pulls you in and will not stop. And I appreciate that. This is to your point, Spencer, this is one of those movies that I have to watch multiple times. I've watched it, I think, three or four times now, and it just, it's still a nut for me to crack. I think I'm kind of there with some of the stuff that's going on. There are refrains of, uh, stories and poems and songs and all of these things happening. And I'm trying to pick up the meaning from that. I'm listening to the commentary, like, oh, okay, that's where this comes in. But man, I feel like I'm kind of a stranger here myself when it comes to how intense this movie is. It is really intense. And the chaos of it is, is one of the things, I mean, I'm really into chaotic films, I will say. But the chaos, I think, is, is maybe the chaos in the sense of world building, Gianna, that you were talking about are, are some points here that I think are, 
you know, for me, really ideologically important in the nature of storytelling in sort of capturing the muchness of life instead of, you know, I, look, I teach in a film school and so much of what we teach, so much of artistic practice is about what you take away and what you get rid of and is not as much about what you include or about the capacious way that you can embrace the world. And, and I have to say that there's, there's, there's an interesting, there's an interesting way in which a film like this struck me as being, well, you know, it's, it's in this totalitarian kind of environment, but this is a, a much more truly socialist kind of film in its vision of people and its embrace of multiplicity and of a community, people within this small part of a nation. Then, of course, you know, Stalin would want to admit to. And from an American point of view, I, I, it's, it's, it's really interesting because a couple of years ago, we got a movie about similar kind of material from a British director with a big combination of British and American actors. Of course, The Death of Stalin, which was a film I really loved. But in, in comparing that film with this film, I, I just, I felt like, well, of course, of course, the way that, that like, you know, these days American and British quote unquote democratic thinkers would make this story is to focus on Stalin and all the important people around him. And it, certainly that's a fascinating story. And I, I genuinely enjoy that movie, but this, this movie being so much about people and to only eventually come upon Stalin as, you know, after seeing the bust and all the talk about him and everything to only come upon him, not as a kind of powerful Harry Lyme figure, you know, in the last act, but, but the, precisely the opposite, the sad dying husk who's shitting his pants and who, whose body has to be coaxed into farting. This is a big turnaround and it's hard for me to imagine an American filmmaker, even one who's fairly radical in their view of power, making something like this, because I think we're so admiring of power. That disturbs me a little bit about our culture. But I think it goes along, you know, back to my point about, you know, removing, deciding only what's important. Well, this process of such focus and, you know, that, that a story is all about removing everything except plot, everything except characterizations of a very small group of people who are then deemed you know, very powerful within their worlds. I just, I find that sort of culturally telling. By comparison, of course, there are many American directors who have gone in an opposite direction, and a lot of them are are big favorites of mine. But th this film right now just struck me as as being cantankerous within the Soviet or, you know, Russian tradition at the point that this arrived. But German, of course, had been, you know, abused by the Soviet system in making his films because they were too far out of the, the norm. And then he took this to Cannes, and it was initially completely rejected for, for being, you know, radical and contrary. And I, I don't know, I can do with more of this kind of contrarianism. Gaiman has a nice quote. He says, I present the background as if it were the real cinema, but that background is indeed the most important. It is life itself. And in Kristalyev in particular, German, like you're saying, plunges us into what feels like this cacophony of personal narratives, right? And memories. And um, he wasn't interested in telling one person's story. He wasn't interested in talking about villains and heroes, like you're saying, Spencer. Um, he's interested in what's happening to the Russian man generally, what's happening to people on the ground. He was interested in telling the truth of the trench. 
which is exactly why, as you're saying, he got in trouble with authorities. Extra wasn't a word that was allowed on set. He amplifies the background characters until the main actors are almost incidental or more often nothing is incidental and the plot just gets swallowed up. And I, I think on the one hand, this chaos results from Germann's like many sources um, his collaged approach to representing collective memory in which one person's protagonist is another person's extra and and every memory of voices and objects and gestures is overlapping and jostling for attention. Yeah, his sources were as, co- as collective and inclusive as possible. He would do these like national photo calls for people's personal photographs because he didn't trust what was in the state archives. And it's alienating, too, because it denies us identification with a single character and maybe any identification often, but it also makes us feel like we've dropped into, like you're saying, a full world that exists because his extras don't behave like extras because other people in a crowded train don't behave like extras in our movie, right? In crowd scenes, everyone has something to do and he picks out individuals in a way that gives each extra personality and life. And I think it's also worth mentioning that like this on-screen chaos is a pretty accurate way to depict the lives of people who have gone through the purges and then the war and now another purge. And it was a world that was really electrified by uncertainty and violence and conspiracy. And there's a lack of space. So people are sharing spaces in ways that are very multifunctional, that are sort of shifting in these schizophrenic ways. Um, And everyone's crowded together, sort of pinging off one another. I think he starts the film off so smartly by having this kind of wandering camera and following a few different characters And it took me until the second time watching this. Like, there's one guy who, whether you believe Wikipedia, he's a Finnish journalist, or if you believe IMDb, he's a Swedish journalist, but the man with the umbrella and the, uh, I think he's wearing galoshes, which is uh, a no-no to wear galoshes in, uh, uh, in wintertime. You wait until the snow starts to melt, right? But, uh, he's there at the beginning. And then this other character named Fedya, who he's the one that we see trying to steal the radiator cap off of the car. And the car happens to have all of the Soviet agents in it. We see him getting arrested. We'll catch up with him later on, both right before we do part two, and then also at the very end. And then this man with the umbrella, the the Finnish or Swedish agent, I imagine Finnish because there's a big kind of rivalry between Finland and, and Russia, if memory serves. And he will show up again as we go along. He doesn't have as uh, recurring of a role as Fedya, but it's smart that we are introduced to these characters. And like I said, I didn't even recognize that we were seeing them multiple times other than I could recognize the agent because of that umbrella. Once that umbrella leaves, and, well, and the agent leaves, then he's no more. But it was smart for him to be identified with that object. And there are a lot of objects in here, and especially our main character, uh, the general, he is rife with objects, especially those huge cigars that he likes to smoke. I mean, he is, th- these cigars are almost embarrassingly long, how big these things are. This is a really nice moment to talk about the structure of the film, I think, because we see Fedya Aramishev like walk through the park and the park is lit beautifully with these strings of lights. And then this like slapstick pratfall, he sets off a fuse and the lights throughout the park start flashing. And then the next time we, or, sorry, the last time we see this character, he's being released from the Gulag concentration camp and he's strung with Christmas lights inexplicably. And of 
like that doesn't make sense, but it's a nice reminder that this film is half memory and half imagination. Our narrator, Alicia, which is short for Alexi, uh, is looking back at his childhood and he's remembering the last days with his dad. And then he's imagining what happened to explain his dad's disappearance, to explain why he comes home so broken and to explain why he goes away again. So the first half of the film is mostly memory. And the second half after the general runs away is mostly fantasy. And Alicia wasn't there. So you'll see, you'll see motifs like the string of light and the stoker reoccur in these much more imaginative, exaggerated ways in part two, as I think Alicia is drawing from his own memory to, to weave together this fantasy. And there's a great deal of surrealism yeah. and, and fantasy and dream life, you know, throughout this movie, as much as it and the cinematic method employed is is focused on the real. The real is constantly producing the marvelous, you know, throughout this film. And I, I like I like that that breakdown of, you know, memory in the first half and then fantasy in the second. And that makes that makes a lot of sense. And I, I will say that, you know, especially because my first viewing of it is fairly hot, you know, having just watched this for the first time last night, there was a way in which I watched this movie like as in that first viewing, more like The Red and the White, for instance, by Miklos Jancho, than I was watching it at, like a single protagonist kind of film. And so one of the interesting things was toward the end, recognizing oh, we really have been following this person throughout. And that was an interesting sort of effect. The like choral quality of everybody being, you know, so present within the film that I kind of lost myself to it. And I'm thinking of this as as one of those more radical movies where you just don't have an individual to follow. And then realizing, no, in fact, we did have a couple of people who we followed from beginning to end in, the, the, in a way... You know, this this guy at the beginning with the lights and that he's wearing them at the end and he's got this balloon, which is really wonderful. I love his balloon in that last sequence. These are markers that we have, in fact, been following characters in semi-traditional way, but that but they are, you know, they are always going to be part of their world and they are not going to be separated out from it. And in, in certain ways, that makes it even more radical than a movie like Slacker that refuses single protagonists. It, you know, that, 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 that becomes kind of pendulum swing away from the traditional single protagonist or even the ensemble, which is, you know, great. But this, this like, you know, sense of immersion, both a kind of narrator who's not as involved in the overall story, but is remembering and maybe dreaming part of it is one main character. And then his father is this other main character who carries us through all this action and conspiracy in a way. And I think there's, there's an arrangement to the film that's a little bit conspiratorial in a, in a good narrative fashion. But we have, yeah, in the end, we have this, this quite radical kind of narrative that I can't say I've seen exactly before. Again, there are comparisons to other filmmakers. I could compare this to the way that Altman worked, for instance, especially in a movie like MASH, where the lead actors especially got really angry with, with Altman as a director for spending so much time with people that they thought of as extras. And in fact, you know, Gould and Sutherland tried to get Altman fired from the movie because they didn't think that they were getting enough attention. And, and, and the beauty of that movie is the sense of how 
these couple of main characters are really existing in this in this world. So there are comparisons that you can make. But I think even even that and even as a big Altman fan, I, I find I find, you know, German's vision in this movie to be another yet another layer of challenge, you know, to a lot of traditional narrative rules and and not just a challenge like, oh, this was hard, but kind of a sense of, oh, this is more the right way to go. It's so interesting to hear you talk about Altman, uh, Spencer. For me, I think the the closest allegiance that I see is to Fellini, especially in this film because of all the circus references. Like every, the world, whole world is a circus. It's a sick, nauseous circus, but it's a circus. And unexpectedly, characters will do like little dances and they'll make funny sounds with their mouths. And just circus references are everywhere. The general, he's like this exaggerated strong man who does headstands and beats fire and bends horseshoes. And there's a <laughs> there's a lion roaring in the park. Uh, the balloon, the, the, the several moments where like too many men will be getting out of a tiny car or into a tiny car. And, and at the end of the film, it seems like the general has been totally worn down by his trauma. He's cruel. He's barely audible. His hair is going white just around the sides. And but when we see him do his trick on the train in the in the film's final scene, we know that he's not totally gone, and it leaves us with some hope. And German was a huge fan of Fellini. In 2000, he called Fellini cinema's only realist, which I really like. And like Fellini, German made his films about the challenges of upholding values and maintaining happiness in a morally corrupt or corrupting world. And Khrushchalia shares a lot with Fellini's work. Like it's got decadence that's a little grotesque. Its childhood has a very strong formative importance. The circus is a metaphor for life carrying on for better or worse. And I think there might even be like really specific Fellini references, like the general's assistant who goes down on him and like touches his buttons. She's a dead ringer for Giulietta Massina, if I've ever seen one, right? Like I think for me, Khrushchalia is a lot like eight and a half, where we see this film director and a circus ringleader metaphorically grow disenchanted and try to escape life only to find that he can't and that it irrepressibly continues. You know, the general, he's like Marcello at the end of La Dolce Vida, like when they, they look at the washed up sea creature and they say it's dead, but it goes on looking like the general is dead, but he goes on clowning. And it's not quite, it's not quite like the touching Knights of Cabiria ending, but there is, there is a sense of hope, I think. My association with this film was that the kind of Knights of Kiberia ending, which, you know, works very differently and it is, it's touching in a more sort of traditional way. But Knights of Kiberia is a, an extremely grim film. And part of, part of the effect of that sort of transcendent ending is everything that you've been through to then, you know, find, find she's losing herself in, in this, this passing circus. And I guess that's, that's part of, Part of the effect of this movie all the way through is the way in which the, the circus and the marvelous, you know, keeps reasserting itself even as things are really terrible. To go back to the, that umbrella, that's one, the, the way that the umbrella in a couple of scenes just suddenly unbidden pops up in the midst of the action, you know, this, these like little grace notes that sort of, you know, remove us from, from that world or, or even, I mean, this is, a, I'm actually going to mention a very grim moment, you know, after, after he's, he's been, been raped, the, the doctor shoving snow into his mouth. There's something about that action that is very, you know, it's very abject on the one hand, but in, in the larger scheme of things and with all the snow that's been follow, uh, falling so beautifully throughout, it isn't only abject. Even at the, the movie's most kind of horrific, 
there is, yeah, there is this this sort of generous sense of you know the the life for the characters being you know worthwhile. Yeah, and I think that speaks to this habit that German had of hiring comedic actors to do his main characters who are in incredibly grim situations. He's worked with like the top brass of Soviet clowns like Yuri Nikulin and Andrei Mironov. This film is really difficult and it's really disturbing, not because of its violence, not because it's depressing, but because the tone keeps like flickering between cruelty and elegance and absurdism. And it's just like unrelenting, this unrelenting mix, right? And it's like in Crystalia of My Car, absurdism is just the other face of oppression. And that's why the rape and the assassination are horribly, uncomfortably funny. The two, oppression and absurdism, are too mixed. In German's 1953, at the peak of a wave of state terror, it's like violent absurdity has become the only natural means of expression. No one can escape it. Even Stalin's death is absurd. And there's a great, really lovely quote by Alexander Etkin, who's a cultural historian. And he wrote lovingly about this film in his book called Warped Morning. And he says, Soviet victims lived and died with the sense of the absurd. But for those who loved them, this senselessness is unbearable, second only to the loss itself, which I take to mean that this absurdism like leaves a scar. It's interesting. As I'm watching the movie the first time, and they come to the, I guess it's an asylum slash hospital, they're doing experiments, there are all these cats that are around, there are a lot of patients that have markings on their head like they have been operated on, and he goes into the room and he sees his double. And I'm just like, okay. This is where the movie's going. This movie is going to be about this guy who meets his double, and he realizes what's going on, and then he's going to fight against it. Nope, that's not this movie. That is not this movie. And I was just like, okay, yeah, all right, good. I got this all figured out. Yeah, warm up the popcorn, get the soda, let's go. Nope, that is not this movie at all, which is just, it's amazing that it keeps taking these turns, and you think that you've got it figured out, and then it takes another turn, and then I'm going along with it again, and then it's like, okay, end of part one, part two. I'm like, whoa, whoa, what, what's happening now? And it just keeps throwing you these curveballs, and I just, I love it in that you're talking about absurdity, and there is just this level of absurdism that is just running through this down to our main character. I mean, the general is an absurd figure. He is this guy who stands two heads taller than everybody else in the entire movie. Like you said, he's this circus strongman looking guy. Uh, for people who haven't seen the film, he looks like the guy who fights Indiana Jones outside of the plane that gets his uh, head caught in the propeller. He's almost a dead ringer for that dude. Yuri Cirillo, the actor, was apparently a blacksmith when German found him and he was acting in like regional theater. German also loved picking picking actors that with great faces and great physiques uh, from regional uh, regional theater. So yeah, Yuri Cirillo. And he's he's gone on to act. He's the star of Silent Souls, which was made in 2010. He's really brilliant. And he's just got that sad clown comedic grace to him. I think he's wonderful. I was surprised looking at his filmography how many times he's popped up in things that I've seen, but I've never realized, oh, that's that guy. I, I was like, oh, really? I've seen him in, well, I think I've tried to like put Forbidden Kingdom behind me uh, and not remember that movie. But again, he shows up in Hard to Be a God and a few other things. I'm just like, oh, okay, yeah, I've seen him around, but he makes such an impression in this movie. I wanted to go back to your point. Mike, about Sasha, the Finnish agent, we can say. And it's important that he's Finnish. And I think it's alluded to that he's Jewish as well, because this was a time 
in Soviet history when any foreignness, any suspicion of any connection with a foreigner was enough to justify an arrest and a charge of treason. During the war, there was quite a lot of exposure to the West um, in terms of films and radio and just like people and soldiers fighting with sold other allied soldiers. And lots and lots of people had contact with the West. And there were also lots of foreigners within Soviet space due to shifting borders. And Stalin saw all of this as a threat, especially as tensions with Western leaders mounted after the war and the Cold War's beginning. I wonder if we should do like just a quick like quick summary of the doctor's plot and just to explain the world of the film a tiny bit. I know you're going to talk to Jonathan Brent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that'd be absolutely fine. There are moments like the nieces that where he's just like, Hey, go back in your cupboard. And you're like, what's going on with these nieces? What's happening? It's very Anne Frank uh, with the way that these characters are treated. And then the, the raid on the house later on, it feels very much like, you know, we talked about uh, on the podcast um, in The Fifth Horseman is Fear. It feels very much like the agents coming in and looking for people who are in violation of uh, the, the powers that be. So, yeah, I definitely think a little bit of the Doctor's plot because it is set against that world. But I don't think that – I don't think very many Americans would know what it is because I definitely didn't before I came to this film. I knew a little, but only very little. I didn't catch up on the supporting documents about the Doctor's plot before I watched this. So there are ways in which that was confusing. But I, I have to say that, like, I, well, this, this is, a, I guess this is about me, but I, I can't, I, I, it did not bother me. It was more of a kind of goad. Okay. You got to look into some of this afterwards, but the reality of the film is so compelling that I don't feel like I, particularly need a sort of primer in the the doctor's plot before the movie. But that said, I do think it's really good for us to talk about the, you know, sort of bizarre, you know, conspiracy that this was and all the, all the strange conspiracy thinking that went into creating the doctor's plot and the situation that this movie finds itself in the middle of. Well, you brought up the death of Stalin and there's, almost a throwaway line in there when Stalin is down for the count and they're like, Oh, somebody get a doctor. And they're like, yeah, the, all the best doctors are in gulags right now or yeah, or dead. So yeah, I, I definitely, uh, yeah. So please feel free, Gianna to give us a little download on uh, the doctor's plot. The doctor's plot was a conspiracy that Stalin thought up to justify a wave of state terror in the late 1940s and early 1950s that was directed first against Jewish people, anyone who wasn't Russian, anyone who had any ties or even any appreciation for things that weren't Soviet, and it eventually extended to the security services and to the top ranks of the state, uh, which is one reason why it was stopped immediately after Stalin's death, because it was getting too close to those in power. And Stalin's goal with the doctor's plot, and um, it was part of a larger wave of state terror called the Anti-Cosmopolitan Campaign. His goal was to eradicate any potential for dissent among people at large and within his government, and to eliminate any foreign influence that remained after the war, and to really reclaim the total grip on power that he had before the war in the 1930s during the the wave of purges. And God, like talking about those uh, the. Jewish nieces, they're like Anne Frank, but they're also not because German doesn't do victims, right? So they're they're horrible. <laughs> they're wonderful, but they're horrible. Like they pants Alicia. They're kind of like these little harpies running around. And and so it's like, yeah, it makes sense to to keep them in the cupboard. Like that makes sense. But at the same time, like 
like we see in the Brodsky uh, source text, in in shared spaces, people divided space in really bizarre ways to get any kind of privacy, right? And the, the general doesn't live in a komunalka. He has his own apartment. He's he's upper class, but people still needed to divide their space. So like what what many people would do would like, they couldn't build a wall. That was illegal because that would give them their own rooms, which was not legal. But what they would do is they would like try to build their own rooms with bookcases and suitcases and and wardrobes. So they would have doors at the front and then the back would be cut off. So that would be like this little passage into a separate space. So on the one hand, it's surreal. And on the other hand, it makes total sense. And that's Alexei German's cinema. I figured that the guy was Finnish mostly because... Uh, people that listen to this podcast know I probably get most of my history from movies. So I remember a film from a few years ago called Sauna, uh, a Finnish horror film from, I think, 2008. And it was all about the wars between Finland and uh, the Soviet Union. So I was just like, okay, yeah, there's history there. So I'm glad to hear you say that he's supposed to definitely be Finnish. And what more incriminating than to have like a probably Jewish foreigner come to your house and be like, yo, so your sister's living abroad, huh? (laughs) German, apparently he used to tell this anecdote about how someone tried to do that to his father, who was a very famous writer, and his dad apparently kicked the person down the stairs. German said, like, everything in this film is from my childhood. He was about 15 in 1953. um, and, And yeah, there are a lot of small anecdotes like that in different interviews. Is Klemsky, is he also Jewish? He's like German, so he has Jews in his family, which means that he has tainted blood. And the twins are his wife's nieces. But yeah, he's the same as German. And German cited anti-Semitism in the 1980s as his inspiration for this film. And and German also had uh, Jewish people in his family. Um, And he said he was very proud of his Jewish blood and very proud of his Russian blood. So... Who is the woman that he ends up having some of the most unromantic sex with? That's the school teacher, Varvara. And it's really unclear to me. I love that scene. It's so good. It's so uncomfortable. I can't figure out if that's some, if, if they had a history or whether this is something that Alicia is imagining, because it's kind of like what a 12 year old would imagine sex to be. Because at some point she's like, wait, I spread my legs. Right. And he's like, yeah, 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 do that. And it's just kind of, it's, Clumsy in a very childlike way, and I, I wonder if we're in if we're in fantasy at that point. Well, it's so strange that he shows up with a fish, and they're arguing about the fish, and the cat nearly drowns because the cat's trying to get the fish, <laughs> and he's spitting fire, and then at one point she spits fire, and I'm like, what the hell is happening here? And then, then yeah, them in bed together, and her wanting him to father a child, and he's like, what am I, a prize bull? And it's like, yeah. You- Kind of are. Prize bull thing along with his, you know, sort of circus strongman appearance. It's just the way that the, the, the way that the movie works organically is, is, is quite, is quite beautiful, you know, that, that it, it this isn't, this isn't just like stray dialogue or like in the moment, there's, there's also a quality where it's very much backed up by the visual that you've been seeing all along that makes it very, very well worked out. I think that the fire breathing is nice too, because General Klensky is coming to this woman, asking her to do something incredibly risky, which is hide a fugitive, right? Hide a famous fugitive and help him get uh, civilian clothes so he can escape. Meanwhile, he looks like no one else. He's super identifiable, but whatever. 
And so he comes to her, he asks her for this dangerous favor. And what he does is this incredibly dangerous thing. He breathes fire. And just after she says yes, she breathes fire too. She's taken on the danger. So it works for me on this like symbolic level. And also just the presence of animals. Like, like there's a cat on the train bringing prisoners back from the gulag. Like there's animals all over this film and, and, and in Hard to Be a God. And I think as German's filmography progresses, they're there are more and more animals in the world, and the world is becoming increasingly bestial. We start the movie with the the dog and the whistling going on with that dog. You know, he's almost our main character. And you hear that whistling at different parts of the film too. Like the the soundscape of Cristalia of My Car is really amazing because you hear you hear these sounds, and then they recur in different places, and then only later will you see the thing that's making the sound. And it's like in this world, the sign and the signifier are completely up in the air. They don't connect. And that, I think that speaks to like the, the chaotic, suspicious nature of the world that's inverted because of state terror. And it also speaks to the patchiness of memory, right? We know something belongs, but we're not quite sure how it fits. And so we just kind of put things in as filler. There's a moment within a shot when the camera returns among all this crowd of people to find this guy you know cradling this sheep i think that he's got in his arms and it's one of those strange moments of surrealism you know where this is just kind of popped up in the midst of you know this this constant scrum of, of action but i would i'd like to talk about the way that this movie is shot just a little bit not just the black and white which of course is is gorgeous and the way that all the all the light sources halo and that it's simultaneously a kind of over overexposed movie and also contrasty enough that it has these deep shadows. The way that the camera works and follows people is interesting and changes over the course of the film uh, somewhat. I mean, it doesn't it doesn't radically shift, but we mostly follow a kind of daisy chain logic for quite a lot of the movie in which each each shot you know only leads to the next there isn't there isn't a way of treating this as you, you, the editor i'm sure has some room for overlaps but we do not have sort of point of view that is 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 generally privileging a breakdown of elements we can simply follow along and then we get to the next shot and we couldn't really possibly cut back to the previous shot and so we have this this daisy chain, which then reminds me quite a bit, the sort of conspiratorial nature, you know, there's on the one hand, the one thing follows another, the, the, the sort of, you know, unfolding of events in a chaotic sort of fashion. But also there's this, there is a kind of suggestion of the conspiratorial thinking of how things get linked and linked and linked. And, and we do have a couple of moments that are key. One of them in terms of, in terms of the editing, there's that moment where our narrator is literally the, it seems to literally be the camera early on in the film and that the camera get, you know, that the, the camera gets covered for a, for a moment, obscuring his point of view within the scene. And then this same trick in areas where that, where, where our, 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 you know, the main boy ha cannot possibly be. We get that same kind of trick quite a number of times later in the film where something is, you know, a coat will be brought in front of the camera to kind of obscure, uh, for a moment. And then as the coat passes, it's, it's like this wipe that's done in the cut where we, we travel to another, another part of the room or a completely different place. And one of the things that's interesting about bringing that kind of, you know, seamless visual wipe approach to these set edits is that in the first part of the movie, quite a lot of the edits, at least to me, felt like a shove. 
into the next, uh, the, the next bit of space that, that, that we follow along and, and the edit, you know, sort of jerks us out continuity space and time just a little bit. And especially will bring us up short on somebody's emotions. And in fact, the very first cut in the movie works in that way. We have this nice long take and what motivates the, you know, the, the, the first cut of the film is, uh, is when, you know, the, the guy who works for the furrier is sort of apprehended by this, this group of men and it cuts into a kind of medium shot on his pained face as he's being attacked. And we follow that kind of logic, maybe in less extreme ways for a lot of the movie. And then it's later on in the film that there are these, these sort of attempts to become more seamless, but also to kind of, you know, loop us back to that moment of obscuring the narrator's point of view for a moment before taking us into another shot. I noticed the same thing. And I, I think this reflects the fact that we're seeing the world in the first half, especially through the eyes of an 11-year-old, right? The camera is darting, it's curious, searching for its dad, but it's also really distracted by, what I, by whatever action is happening right now. You know, the camera behaves like a child. It's it's right in the middle of events, but its personal space isn't respected. You know, it's it's often ignored by adults or smiled at indulgently or like told to buzz off. And it may may not be focusing on what an adult considers important, but instead on whatever action is happening right now. Um, and Brodsky sort of talks about this in his source text. He mourns the way that children are like esthetes, right? Our childhood brains pick up on surfaces and gestures and actions and the wrinkles in the dad's forehead, but not maybe more meaningful moments. But when we're fantasizing about what happens to the dad after the dad has left Leningrad, uh, mostly in the second half, the camera is more fluid. It, it can do things that a person can't. Uh, it you know jumps from the inside to the outside of a train car and it hovers right behind the general's shoulder. Uh, and sometimes we even very rarely see things from the general's point of view. Like it's as if maybe the narrator is putting himself in his dad's shoes. Well, it's interesting, too, that a lot of times people look at the camera. I've noticed, I think I saw a a supercut of the times that people look at the camera, especially it seems to be like the last shot of the film. But there are a lot of times in this movie where people are just looking at the camera like, okay, yeah, well, what are you doing here kind of thing? And it doesn't seem like it's necessarily breaking the fourth wall but it's just like these people are aware of us looking at them which is great and then there are also times where you know you've got the camera set up in one place and there are people just walking in front of it there's one scene i can't remember if it's uh Klimsky's wife or who it is but they're brushing their hair and they just keep walking in front of the camera brushing their hair and we've got Klemsky in the midground and all of this you know chaos going on around him but Normally, we'd be paying attention to Klemsky, but here's this woman just walking across, brushing her hair, walks back the other way, walks back the other way. And it's like, okay, yeah, this is why I like German cinema, because he's doing these things that I would never have expected before. To make another comparison to a sort of American, more collective, collectively thinking or ensemble-based filmmaker, Jonathan Demme is famous for his shots of people looking directly into camera. But they, but, he, but whereas, whereas German is allowing people to look into the camera just through the course of the action, Demme is very specifically setting up these moments, you know, sort of the, the tight identification to look into the camera and to look at each other that are, that are very constructed. And so 
you know, even for as much a humanist as Demi is, he kind of has to, in, in order to do this thing that goes against the grain of, you know, most American practice in, in how actors, performers, subjects relate to the camera, he ha, he kind of has to create a formal rule to allow that to happen. And Germán does not. The formal rule is that the world al- simply allows for this. And I think that that's a really interesting kind of, you know, contrast again, a, a little bit of a, a recognition of, of some ideological differences in, in our patterns of storytelling. Like Mike, you were saying about the breaking the fourth wall, like German doesn't give us a fourth wall, right? Like we're not afforded that luxury. <laughs> he wants us to be there and to be there. And we're thinking about our dad, but of course our mom is in the way. Like, of course she's there too. Um, and I think in terms of ideology, it's also important to think about like the the historical specificity of this period. And this was a time when Stalin was demanding total vigilance in every citizen. And this involved surveilling and informing. And it also involved carefully inferring the will of the government and performing it in all your actions, right? And in every communalka, in every communal apartment, there was a mandated person who was the informer, but there were also lots of other people who were informing for all kinds of reasons. Like the the communal apartment was a state-sanctioned means of internal policing by law. So of course we have people looking nervously at us and look because we're a person in the film. And yeah, this this took a, a psychological toll. You know, uh, Khrushchev wrote in his memoirs, which are very fictional, but um, he wrote about 1953 about or about the last year of Stalin's life. He said. Stalin's version of vigilance turned our world into an insane asylum in which everyone was encouraged to search for non-existent facts about everyone else. Son was turned against father, father against son, and comrade against comrade. And in this world of the film, it's like everyone's boiling over. They're paranoid, they're anxious, they're riddled with surveillance and conspiracy. Characters are constantly denying seeing things, but they peer into the camera and they're being caught in the act of stuff. And and they use metaphor and gesture because straightforward communication is too dangerous, especially in these really crowded environments. We are always searching for the things that we know. You know, you you brought up Jonathan Demi's close-ups, and it's like, okay, yeah, I can see where you're coming from. We've brought up other films as well, where it's like, okay. So for me, I'm like looking at the camera work, and I'm thinking of like birds, orphans, and fools, and the way that the camera moves in that. I'm looking at the paranoia, and I'm thinking of uh, especially the street scenes in the ear. You know, there were a lot of, even with the fish, I was just like, oh, okay, well, if that's a carp, then that's, uh, it reminds me of uh, the cremator. So I'm just like, constantly grabbing on to other things, even to the point where when they start playing roll out the barrels, I'm just like, Oh, wow. I remember talking about that with, uh, late August at the Ozone Hotel. So it's just, it, this movie just scratched so many itches for me where I was just like, Oh, yeah, this feels familiar, but new at the same time. And I love that this was all, I mean, I, the thing that kept getting me was I was like, this is 1998. I mean, the film looks like it's from 1953. You would never know that it was from 98 because it never betrays its sources whatsoever. It's just like, this is. Set in 1953, it feels like this film escaped from 1953. Escaped is the right word, too. And there are, obviously, there are great period pieces that have that kind of feeling of just, you know, immersion. But I have to say, like, recent period pieces have me a bit in a bit of a lather because they just, they feel so stiff that, that, like, quite often the production design and the costuming will be immaculate and, and quite beautiful, but that, 
everybody within the film and the camera within the film is behaving as if we're in these like perfectly created dioramas and not within worlds and the textures seem wrong and everything. And this is, yeah, that's a really great point because this is one that, that of course I didn't live in 1953, so I can't comment, but the way in, the way in which it just immerses us so confidently into the, into the world and uh, that it obviously is not, you know, the present when it was made is really beautiful and remarkable. Yeah, so Gammon was he was planning the film in the late 80s and it finally premiered in 1998 when Russian cinema was just dead, just on its knees after lots of financial collapses and and no support system after the USSR dissolved. But the whole time that he's making this film, he's really clear that this film is about contemporary Russia. And at the film's Russian premiere, he says to Jay Hoberman, he says, "The artist is a canary in the mine shaft. We didn't really want to depict 1953. We wanted to show what Russians are like." And then he adds, eh, maybe things are just simpler now. They just shoot you. So this is in reference to the fact that throughout the 90s, daily life has become increasingly in just unbelievably desperate and difficult and violent for many, if not most people in the country. And German was making this film about state terror. And it's not hard to see the uncertainty and the poverty and the interpersonal violence fostered by Yeltsin's imposition of shock capitalism as at least analogous to a form of state terror in terms of its effects. And meanwhile, throughout the decade, the government is becoming increasingly autocratic. Yeltsin is moving away from democracy and starting this brutal war in Chechnya. And there's terrorism on both sides. And and the more you read about Russia in the 90s, the extreme poverty, the rates of violent death, the gang warfare, the collapse of education and healthcare, and these sweeping epidemics of infectious disease and addiction, the more it makes sense that German is starting to think about this medieval world of hard to be a god with all its muck and drunken feudal violence. And at the same time, he's making a film about state terror because a lot of these things were based on state policies. It's interesting because it, obviously the film's very grim, but it, it, you know what you're saying reminds me of a Russian joke that was going around in the late 90s that was, what has capitalism finally accomplished that uh, communism never could? And the punchline was making communism look good. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. German is is... I think one part of his project is addressing this wave of nostalgia for a supposedly stable Soviet past by reminding people what it was really like, right? Because that nostalgia helped put Putin, this great stabilizer in power, right? The other thing to consider is after the disintegration of the Soviet Union, there were new waves of xenophobia and anti-Semitism mixed with this rising nationalism. And German cited this specifically as inspiration for Kristalyov Maikar. He said he was all for countries having their own identities and languages, but he was against this, what he called a national call for hate. And going back to when he was like dreaming up Kristalyov Maikar in the 1980s, in the earlier in the 1980s, there was actually a state-sponsored anti-Zionist committee which blamed the obvious signs that the Soviet system was going to collapse on a, quote, Jewish plot financed by global economic powers. And the committee's purpose was to root out Zionist sabotage and condemn emigration to Israel as treason. And it was just using all of this language that was really reminiscent of what was happening in 1953. And really, anti-Semitism had been rife throughout the 70s and 80s and 90s. But it was it was this moment that I think really gave birth to to Kristall of my car. I saw a really dark meme. Uh, I can't remember when it was, but it was like, you know, awards for journalism in different countries and the award for journalism in uh, Russia was uh, a tombstone. I was like, okay, yeah. 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 Things aren't going 
well right now. I mean, like the leading opposition movement is being labeled extremist and, and any independent media is being labeled a foreign agent and they have to like put foreign agent on all of their adverts and all of their headlines. And the font has to be twice as big as their actual font. You know, it's just like, it's crazy. It's really frightening right now. And yeah, there was that whole thing of uh, after Israel was um, established, it was like Jewishness led to Israel. Israel leads to America. America leads to you know depravity and 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 just uh, the our way of life, which is like anathema to Russia. So it's just like all of these things kind of in this weird chain of being Jewish or being around Jewish people is going to lead you down this horrible path. And in the 1970s, it's really funny because not funny. It's it's interesting that um, certain Jewish people were encouraged to emigrate, and by encouraged, I often mean like rounded up and put it on put on a plane, like like Brodsky, right? Certain Jews are forced out of the country, out of the USSR, and others are prevented from emigrating. And those are top scientists, right? And people who are respected by the by the Soviet Union. So it's 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 complicated and it's interesting. Part of the effect for me of, of this movie was that the, the sort of using using the past to allegorize, obviously that lands very, very different for a Russian viewer and is meant to do so. But that allegorical power to the period piece that, that it had when it was made actually helps it, in, in a way, helps bring it into my own present tense and make me, you know, reflect on my own life that we're not, we're not just a sort of dramatizing past historical moment, but that there's, there's a kind of, you know, for lack of a better term, mythological quality that is being brought out that, that I think creates an accessibility even to someone that knows very little about this, this kind of time and place. And, you know, on one level, this, this is one of those movies that's like an ultimate anti-COVID experience kind of movie because it's just these throngs of people all crowded together in small spaces. And watching that has a different meaning to me now than it did a year ago. But, but on the other hand, you know, quite, quite a lot of the sort of, you know, conspiratorial and authoritarian vibe, you know, speaks to <laughs> some contemporary American experience. It's, it, you know, delivered by different means, but, you know, in the way that, 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 like, you know, good science fiction or, you know, good mythology, you know, speaks to contemporary conditions. Again, this is, this is a kind of thing where this is not just the way, the way in which it's been done, I think speaks to a lot of basic human kinds of experiences. And yeah, reminds, reminds me a lot of how my relatively good and privileged situation where I live has, uh, some, you know, frightening similarities to this, you know, by far less than ideal kind of political situation. I don't know if you guys have ever read Masha Gessen's book, Surviving Autocracy, but they draw really um, interesting parallels between sort of Stalinism, Putinism, and Trumpism. It's, it's a great read, I have to say. And that kind of nostalgia we have our own nostalgia issues that are very deeply rooted, you know, for, you know, the second half of 20th century in America and up through the present. There's, there is, there's like a very intense kind of nostalgia culture and especially for sort of mid, mid century, mid 20th century that, that remains. 
it is really interesting. Like I obviously would not have nostalgia for the period of the 1950s in the Soviet Union. That would not be it at all. And that's not something that the, that the movie necessarily does for an American viewer, stoking that, that sort of nostalgia. In fact, you know, for an American viewer, it's kind of like those bad things are, yes, that comports with the ideas that have come to me about how, how bad things were in Russia in the 1950s or the Soviet Union in the 1950s. But, but, but on the, on the other hand, that, that sense that the people are contending with a kind of nostalgia and the, I guess with a little bit more backstory to it, that that nostalgia is uh, at least partly responsible for Stalin's concocting of this conspiracy theory to sort of bring the kind of power back to what it used to be before, at least in his mind. I don't know exactly where I'm going with this, but there are a lot of interesting things about the nostalgia and anti-nostalgia kind of vibe with this film. Kevin has an interesting relationship to nostalgia. During Perestroika and Glasnost, when finally people can make films about the horrors of the past, German makes his most tender film. He makes his most nostalgic film. I should say his first three films are super tender. It will be shocking to anyone who's just seen Kristoljev, My Car and Hard to Be a God, how loving his first three films are. The camera, it like moves really slowly over people's faces, like someone stroking a photograph and in the voiceover to this film that he made during Glasnost, uh, my friend Ivan Lapshin, the narrator says that the film is a declaration of love to the people that he knew as a child, to the people that he grew up with, and the way that they looked after one another. German wants to encourage love for the ways that people took care of one another in the face of totalitarianism and purges and suspicion. And he's also reminding us that we can make these gestures too, because he really focuses on agency and on the loss of agency. The, the general can't do anything. Any, every choice he makes is inverted. Um, hard to be a god. Don Rumada is too drunk to do anything but be violent. But in these earlier films, the, the emphasis is on how people look after one another. Meanwhile, when Krystalyev My Car came out, like I said, there was so much nostalgia for this like supposedly stable Soviet past that I think Gammon wanted to be like, really, this is what you're this is what you're nostalgic for? It's interesting that you say how gentle his earlier films were, because I am coming at this man's filmography backwards. I'm coming at it from Hard to Be a God, and then Christelli of My Car, and now I will go on to Even Lapshin. So I'm having the opposite experience that people who loved his earlier works and then saw this and were just like, what the fuck are you doing to me? They, you know, we'll hear in an interview later how much they hated it at Cannes and how much the film was just excoriated when it came out. Eventually, people kind of came around to it, and there were some that were like, you know, this is fantastic, like Martin Scorsese when he saw it. It's interesting, in the second half of the film, there's a shot where I was reminded of Scorsese when he's the camera's going through all of these faces and all of these people. And I'm just like, this is very much that shot of uh, the camera wandering through as Henry narrates all of the different gangsters, you know. There was Anthony Stabile, Frankie Carbone, and then there was Mo Black's brother, Fat Andy, and his guys, Frankie the Wop. Freddie No Nose. And then there was Pete the Killer, who was Sally Balls' brother. And you had Nicky Eyes. And Mikey Franchese. And Jimmy Two Times, who got that nickname because he said everything twice, like. I'm gonna go get the papers, get the papers. 
because it's a really rough-looking crowd as well. I did like what Daniel Bird had to say as far as the first half of the film is very much a white on black. We have all of these like overexposed-looking shots, especially when the general wear a white shirt. It almost blows out the camera because it's so white. And then the second half of the film is more of a black on white because it's now we're in the countryside with all of the snow, these white expanses, and the black pieces are just smaller dots as opposed to the black being the contrast, and now it's the white being the contrast. And some of those shots in the second half of the film with the snow and the fog, I mean, it, it, it really is just gorgeous stuff. The whole film is really gorgeous. And, you know, for all the, the sort of <laughs> bumptious complexity of the, of the blocking, that chaos for me is, is beautiful and sort of, I don't, maybe not balletic exactly because it doesn't have that kind of gracefulness, but it's, but it is dance-like. The sense of how people move around each other throughout the film is, is really gorgeous. And especially, you know, along with this black and white, that is so beautifully exposed for faces and for this environment. A really gorgeous film. Again, that, that sort of brings back this sense that, it, I mean, thinking, I, I definitely now need to see these earlier films of his because I find something tremendously tender about this very film. There's so much that's unpleasant. There's so much of the background is unpleasant, but the, the, the tenderness toward the people at all times and the way in which they're, they're photographed in this kind of, at times, winter wonderland. All the light sources blowing out around, you know, snow at night from those opening shots and then throughout so much of it. And then these domestic spaces that are full of activity, but also full of people interacting in ways that have conflict, but where it doesn't feel as if they're so annoyed by each other, as is, is quite typical of a lot of films that would have, have, you know, people in this kind of a, this kind of a grim situation, the sort of instant resort to unpleasantness among, among characters as a way of keeping things quote unquote dramatic. I mean, certainly insults do fly and whatnot, but the way in which people physically move around each other constantly is, there's just there, there's a lot there's there's this wonderful kind of fellow feeling within a very desperate sort of situation and that it even plays up to you know the kind of tenderness toward the characters as grotesque as it is even plays up to the final appearance of Stalin himself as as this like ruined you know he's not the man of steel he's not the, the totalitarian leader in this moment he is an old withered man dying in a bed who, you know, can't control his bowels anymore. One of the source texts for this film was uh, Svetlana Aleluyeva, Stalin's daughter, her memoirs. And she writes about her dad's death. And that's where the film gets its title, Khrushchev off my car. That's what Beria said the moment Stalin died. He was like, hey, you get the car. We're going back to Moscow. Um, I'm taking charge, man. But she writes really explicitly about Stalin's death, and she apparently his last treatment was Vaseline enemas and leeches, which you see in the film. So that's nice accuracy there, German. Thank you. To talk about the black and white for a minute, German said that he he only shot in black and white because he wanted to force the audience to add their own color. That's speaking to the fact that he wants really active participants in these worlds. He's not going to let us fall back on our haunches and sort of expect to get things fed to us in these really traditional ways. In terms of like the the whiteouts and the snow, I kept having these moments where like it would get really foggy and I thought we were going to switch to another scene, but then the fog would 
lift and we were still in the exact same place or like someone in a big overcoat would walk in front of the camera and it would go black and I'd be like okay that's a cut you know and then but then they just walk past and I'd be like oh no we're we're still in the scene and I think these fake outs these they're here to keep us on our toes and they're here to force us to recognize that maybe we needed a break maybe this is painful but you're really here you don't get a break you're you know this isn't going to be convenient for you the viewer and when a character covers the camera it's because they don't want us to see something it's not because it's a, a convenient cinematic device and they also the, the fake outs also make sense with the surreality of the film right it's the circus is one step ahead of you all the time and so is this film i could have used somebody walking in front of the camera during that rape scene because that is rough oh man well, it's rough to, I watched that a second time because I wondered if the first time, you know, obviously the emotional tone of this movie is intense and ever changeable, but there, I, I wondered about my own reaction that the first time that I saw it, I was watching this as a, as another sort of comically grim sort of scene that then took this hard turn. And I wondered about my own reaction that maybe I had like not paid adequate attention or that I'd gotten into another vibe and, and, you know, watching that again to see the turn, it's like, no, actually there is this, this, this true nightmarish quality to that scene where it is very suddenly going in a direction that I did not at all expect or in the moment that I was thinking I didn't sign up for this. But that's, but that's, you know, that's, that's part of the, I mean, we didn't sign up for history either, you know, and that's, that, that's the nature of the scene. But it is, it's, to me, that it's tremendous in the, in the way that we turn that corner and how unpleasant and difficult it is. And then how we turn the corner out of it once again. It's remarkable to me. Yeah, it's this really uncomfortable mix of funny and horrifying, right? And and when we get to Hard to Be a God, all the descriptions of rape are just horrifying, but the characters seem to find it funny. And here we're one step back up the, the devolutionary ladder, right? I mean, German said that the rape scene was based on information from Solzhenitsyn, who is, of course, famous for writing about the gulag. I was really excited to notice that the choreography of the rape actually mirrors the choreography of the twins before they pull Alicia's pants down, which is another another violation, right? I would argue that he's using this moment from his own past to blow out of proportion and to make an excuse for why his dad disappears. But it also speaks to the fact that German, again, like doesn't have victims and he doesn't have villains. The, the rapist in that film is immediately killed under the truck, right? He, Everyone's getting off in that rape scene except the general. Like German, and that's kind of why it's so funny and so bizarre. And um, German, he only has groups and sh- and scapegoats. And his focus is what totalitarianism does to your body and your psyche. It's not on blaming specific groups of people for it. So everyone is degraded. And everyone becomes violent, even the general. Uh, Trauma is just passed from person to person to person. All right, guys, let's go ahead and take a break, and we're going to play a pair of interviews. First up, we'll hear from Jonathan Brent, the co-author of Stalin's Last Crime, The Plot Against the Jewish Doctors. And we'll hear from one of the producers of Khrushchev My Car, Guy Seligman. And we'll hear from both of those right after these brief messages. Hello from Cinema Detroit. We are Metro Detroit's only truly independent cinema and also the only first-run, seven-day-a-week movie theater in greater downtown. We deliver an eclectic mix of mainstream art, indie, genre, cult, and classic movies in the heart of the city. 
like a sommelier choosing wine or a DJ mixing a set, we handpick our slate of films, many of which are exclusive to the metro area, the state of Michigan, or the entire Midwest region. Cinema Detroit features a unique setting in a former furniture store and a warm neighborhood atmosphere, including always fresh popcorn, Detroit-made Fago soda, and other locally created treats. Please visit our website, cinemadetroit.org, for the latest features and showtimes. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram. We look forward to seeing you soon at 4126 3rd Street in the city, 48201. In 1985, a curious phenomenon occurred. The Twilight Zone returned to television, featuring all new tales of mystery and imagination from the minds of Ray Bradbury, Harlan Ellison, George R.R. Martin, and Stephen King. Dreams for Sale, the Twilight Zone 85 podcast looks back at that land of shadow and substance and re-examines the groundbreaking successor to Rod Serling's legacy. Featuring new interviews with the show's creators and cast, Dreams for Sale can be found on iTunes and at twilightzone85.com. Dreams for Sale. We'll be waiting for you in the Twilight Zone. Hi there, Faithful Projection Booth listener, Chris Stashew here. If you're looking for even more deep-dive film discussion, both old and new, on and off the cinematic beaten path, check out the Culture Cast. Every episode, I'm joined by a different guest as we traverse the cinema landscape, talking about not only our monthly theme, but also some of the year's biggest films. I'm even joined by the host of the Projection Booth, the one and only Mike White. So if you want to listen to even more conversations on film, head on over to CultureCast.com or find it on all podcasts Catchers both Android and iOS. Professor Brent, can you tell me how did you get interested in history, especially around Stalin and some of the other books that you've written? It seems I've always been interested, to tell you the truth, from a child. My father brought home a recording of the Red Army marching band and chorus when I was five years old, and I I decided I was going to sign up for the Soviet Army at that point. <laughs> You know, and I lived through the Cold War, and I was in the Vietnam War protests, and I was just, and my my family background is from, from Kiev and the Kiev area, and so there was a lot of lore in my family about Russia and so on and so forth, and I became intrigued as a child. And then in college, I studied Russian. I was always interested in Russian literature, in Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, and others. But I then learned about really the glory of Russian literature. And right. it's been a lifelong fascination for me ever since. I translated Joseph Brodsky, Anna Akhmatova. I've translated Mayakovsky. At the same time, I got somehow connected with the dissident movement, partly because my father, who owned a bookstore in Chicago, received a shipment of Gulag Archipelago that was published by George Plimpton's YMCA Press in Paris. And Plimpton came to Chicago and he brought these copies, Gulag Archipelago in Russian, the Russian edition. And my father gave me a copy and I still have it. And I read it or struggled to read it in Russian. And I just somehow at that early age, 
when I was still in college, became magnetized to the subject. And afterwards, after college, after graduate school, I started a literary magazine in which we, because I realized very few other people knew about all this stuff. Right. It was it was almost unknown in the United States. And and then I, I started learning about Czech and Polish resistance and Hungarian resistance, and I got to meet some of these people. So I started a literary magazine called Formations back in the early 80s, and we published dissident writers from all over Eastern Europe and Russia. And lo and behold, George Soros read it, and, and he got in touch with me. Because wow. I was the only guy in town, you know, who was really doing this sort of thing. And he said, would you please come to Prague? I'd like you to become part of the Central European University that I wow. start. This was 19, April 1991. And so I went to Prague and I'm sitting with George and professor, Hungarian professor of history is giving a talk. And he said, they're starting to work. This is April 1991. The Soviet Union hasn't collapsed yet. And the guy says that they're working in the government archives to discover the history of the Cold War. I said, I stopped him. I just said, just a moment. You're working in the former Soviet government of Hungary's archives? He said, yes. Wow. So I, I, turned, to, I turned to George Soros. I said, George? This is the publishing opportunity of the century. All the secrets of the Cold War are in those fucking archives. We should publish all of that. He said, absolutely. He said, that's a great idea. You know, George Soros, despite all of the baggage and all the bad stuff about him that's being written, he is a man who says yes. He is not a man who says no. And the consequence is that he, despite everything, uh, whatever you may think of him, he has stimulated activity rather than shut it down. And uh -huh. so it was his burst of enthusiasm for this that made me think this really was something. And he said, you come up with the ideas and I'll come up with the money. It was very simple. He invited me to come to Prague and live there and invited my family to come over. But such is life. We had just had our seconds and my wife refused to go to Prague for various reasons. And so it was heartbreaking to me, but I went back to Northwestern University where I was editorial director and I started telling people about this trip that I had taken and the results of it and that Soros was interested. And I got nothing but blank stares. I was in a world in which people said no rather than yes. And I knew I had to get out of that world, even though Chicago was where I was born and I was teaching at Northwestern. I thought, this is a world-changing idea. This is, a, this is really something, and I want to do it. So I started looking around, and sure enough, there was an opening at Yale University, and I went there. And I didn't have to explain to them what the Cold War was or why it was important to, <laughs> to try to look at documents. You know, they, they kind of got it. And so I got hired there, and the first thing I did was start this project, the Annals of Communism, the purpose of which was to and, and I was totally convinced of the criminality of the Soviet system. I was not a, a leftist apologist for the Soviet system. But the project attracted leftist apologists, and it also attracted right-wing ideologues. The project itself 
developed this interesting character of an having an internal dialogue of some people who thought that Alger Hiss was guilty and some people who thought he was innocent. Some people who thought Stalin had murdered Kirov and some people who thought that Stalin did not murder Kirov. And this, of course, drove the Russians crazy, whom we were working with because they didn't they didn't like this left wing this left wing apology for Stalin uh, for all kinds of reasons we can get into. But nevertheless, it turned out I was the only American publisher who was really deeply interested in the scholarly weight of all of this material. I wasn't just going in for a quick document and pulling it out and doing something sensational. So the Russians, they uh, started to trust me. And eventually I gained the trust of somebody by the name of Vladimir Pavlovich Naumov, who had been the historian of the uh, Central Committee under Gorbachev, and he was a Gorbachev Democrat. And I always accused him of being Jewish, though he would never admit it. And I still think he is, was, he unfortunately has died. I just, I adored him. And because he would tell me all these jokes, he would say that they were Russian jokes, but they were really Jewish jokes. They were the kind of jokes I heard around my dining table, you know, at home. And, and, and one time, I'll tell you a story about him. I know you don't know Yiddish, do you? Or, a little, just a little. Okay. So you probably know this. But uh, he was always telling me he was born in Novgorod and that there were, he had a lot of Jewish friends. He grew up among Jews. And so I said to him one day, Vladimir Pollitch, you, you grew up among Jews. Yes. Mm-hmm. I said, did they speak Yiddish? He said, yes, they did. I said, did they speak Yiddish to you? He said, oh, yes, they spoke Yiddish to me. And he's already 85 years old, you know. Right. So I said, Vladimir Pollitch, do you remember any of the Yiddish? So he leaned very close to me. And he said, do you know what it means, Kishmirim Tochas? If you don't know what that means, it means kiss my ass. Right. <laughs> this was the one thing he remembered all these years. <laughs> but he said it perfectly with a perfect Yiddish accent. I'm pretty sure he was Jewish. Anyhow, he had a lot of Jewish friends. And I believe he knew people who had gotten caught up in the doctor's plot. He came to me one day and he said, listen, let's write the book together. I said, but Vladimir Pollitch, I'm not a historian. I'm a publisher. He said, it doesn't make any difference. I'm the historian. I'll get all the material. And you're a writer. He had seen my writing. Uh-huh. And he said, you write the book and, and, and we'll discuss it. And, and it'll be, and that's the way it'll happen. Well, in the course of it, I became a historian. Translated all the documents into English. I organized them. I created all, all kinds of computer files and so on, and therefore was able to do work on the computer, which it would have taken years to do by, by hand. I was able to cross-reference names, and we discovered all kinds of things as a consequence of that. But he is the one who did all the research in the KGB archive, and then he made copies of the materials and sent them to me. When was the first time you heard about the Doctor's Plot, and what was your reaction to it? Well, the fact is, I heard about the doctor's plot initially in Chicago, believe it or not, in the 1980s, because there was a guy in Chicago named Steve Coakley. He was working for the mayor, 
He was a spokesperson for the mayor. And he was going around in black inner city neighborhoods giving speeches in which he claimed that Jewish doctors were injecting black babies with the AIDS virus. And I thought this was scandalous and somebody somebody needed to write about it. So I wrote an article that was published in the New Republic on this subject. I think it was 85, maybe 84, something like this. And in any case, in the research that I did about Steve Coakley, I got to learn more and more about the doctor's plot, that this was, in fact, the accusation that was made against the Jewish doctors in the Soviet Union around the time of Stalin. Uh-huh. So that, that was really the extent of my knowledge of it. When I first met Naumov, I said, uh, and he asked me the same question. I told him the story, and, he's, and then I said, and of course, the doctors were innocent. And he looked at me with the enigmatic smile that he always had. And he said, well, not exactly. I said, you mean they're guilty? The doc, the Jewish doctors are guilty, as Stalin said? He said, no, not exactly. He said, in this world, there were no innocents and, 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 and there were no purely guilty people. The system corrupted everyone in it. And what we're going to do in this book is show how the system worked, what the mechanism of the system was. And I thought that was beautiful, that this was going to be beyond the typical sort of diatribe, Stalin's anti-Semitism or Soviet anti-Semitism, into a much deeper investigation of the way the system worked. That's what we did. I said to him, Vladimir Palich, are we going to get to the bottom of the KGB archives on this? And again, he looked at me with that enigmatic smile. He said, of course, we're going to get to the bottom of the KGB archives. But the KGB archive has many bottoms. (laughs) 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 And, And I know that we only got to maybe the second or the third bottom. Right. Probably a half a dozen more. For my listeners who aren't familiar with it, can you try to describe what the doctor's plot is? Because I know it's very labyrinthine at times. The doctor's plot, so-called, was the accusation made by Stalin and his government that Jewish doctors in league with Soviet security services were working on behalf of the American government to undermine Soviet to undermine Soviet power and to murder Kremlin leaders. The whole doctor's plot in a nutshell. Now, to talk about the origins of it, the meaning of it, the mechanism of it, and all the rest of it can take an hour or two hours or a whole class, because I have taught classes on this, and it's extremely complicated, as you say, labyrinthine. But that, in a nutshell, that's what it was. If, if you want me to go into more detail, I'm happy to do that. <laughs> I, I'm cautious to have you go into too much because I know that it can get really complicated really quickly. But I, I guess what were the origins of the plot? The origins of the plot are not what people think. The common idea is that the doctor's plot developed out of two things. Stalin's, as Khrushchev said, Stalin's primitive anti-Semitism 
That is, he just viscerally hated Jews. His daughter married a Jewish guy, but he had a Jewish grandson who did very, very well for himself in, in Moscow. All right, that's a whole other subject. The doctor's plot developed out of Soviet, the anti-Semitism of the Soviet system itself. Uh-huh. So there are two typical explanations. In fact, the doctor's plot, and this is what we argue very forcefully, was original with this book. The doctor's plot develops out of a complex of factors that, that exist in the Soviet Union at the end of World War II. One, America becomes the enemy. Stalin could not live without enemies. So Germany's done. Now it is America that is the enemy. That's number one. Number two, despite having the greatest military in the world, the most powerful military in the world, far exceeding the United States or any Western country, Stalin could not feed his people. There was starvation, cannibalism in the Ukraine. The cities that had been bombed by the Germans had not been repaired. Let me give you a, 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 this is absolutely honest to God, true story. A friend of mine who was the daughter of the Polish ambassador to Austria after the war had taken his family to Vienna. And there he was given a tour of the city. When he gets back home, his wife had arranged a dinner for him with various dignitaries and so on and so forth. And he comes in and he looks terribly depressed. And his wife has him sit down and she offers him soup and he doesn't touch his soup. And she looks at him and she says, Carol, what's the matter? You don't like soup? You're not hungry? What's the matter? He said, no, it's not that. He said, he said I thought we had won the war. What did that mean? It meant that, yes, they had won, the Soviets had won, but Vienna is a beautiful city, and Warsaw is bombed out. You can eat Bratwurst Berlin, and they're eating children in Ukraine. So who won the war? Stalin is aware of this as one of the most grievous and gravest threats to Soviet power. They win the war, and yet his people are starving, and he is terrified of open revolt, open Uh rebellion. Okay, so here are two factors. Third factor, Stalin suffers a something, stroke, heart attack, general exhaustion, and and he is advised by his doctors to go to the south and there recuperate for nine months or so or more. And he does. And to this day, we don't know what he suffered because these medical records are still top secret. But he goes to the South and he leaves Molotov in charge of the government. Molotov, his bosom friend from and colleague from the, the 20s and before Molotov, who, uh, you know, was he, he, he engineered the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, foreign minister, lifelong devoted acolyte. And there is a lot of enthusiasm in Moscow for the Allies, for having won the war. They love Americans because of Lend-Lease. 
and they like Americans because they're open and they'll buy you a beer and they'll give you the watch and they'll give you the shirt off their back if they, you know and and they're just good guys and there's openness and so on and so forth that prevails throughout the Soviet Union America has very very high prestige at the same time that Stalin <laughs> through his, his analysis, recognizes that America is now the geopolitical enemy. So this is, a, this is a problem. He has a problem. And furthermore, Molotov gives an interview to the International Herald Tribune, I believe it is, in which he says that they're, they're all looking forward to a relaxation of censorship to an era of collaboration with the West and to restoring a normal kind of life in the Soviet Union after years and years of repression and deprivation. Well, Stalin sees this interview and he goes absolutely batshit and <laughs> he fires off telegram after telegram to Molotov saying, who do you think you are? Where do you think you are? How could you give an interview like this? Don't you know those sons of bitches are our enemies? Don't you know that you're giving them fodder? You're, you're reinforcing all of their stereotypes. The Soviet Union was not successful. The Soviet Union can't provide for its people. We're looking forward to collaboration. What do we need with collaboration? And he's furious with Molotov. And furthermore, he becomes aware that it's not just Molotov. There are others, especially the younger cadres, because by now he's, you know, hitting his mid-70s. And he's aware that not only are there Molotov figures, but there are figures from Leningrad who are genuine heroes. They they performed with great heroism during the war in all kinds of different ways. And so he perceives an internal threat to his power. He perceives an external threat to his power, which is the United States. On what basis does he come to the conclusion that America is his enemy? Does he just make it up? He reads a book somewhere? What, he consults Madame Blavatsky? No because of the atom bomb project, because he knows through Soviet intelligence that America has been transporting Gestapo to the United States to provide intelligence on Soviet war plans and war methods, because they've taken Werner von Braun to develop new rocketry. And so in 1946, a guy by the name of Zhdanov gives a speech in Poland in which he reiterates something Stalin had already laid out, which is the central concept of the Cold War, which is today there are two camps. There is the capitalist camp, of which the United States of America is now the center, and there is the communist camp, of which Moscow is now the center. And these Uh are irreconcilable geopolitical enemies, and there will be a conflict, if not now, later. And we have to do everything we possibly can to prepare for this conflict. Now, this takes place prior to the beginning of the doctor's plot. But this is all the background of it. The consequence is that on the one hand, he declares there are two camps. There's the American camp and there's the Russian camp, the Soviet camp. And on the other hand, he's got Molotov saying 
idiotic things like this about the Americans. He's got people in love with the Americans. And so he has to do what? A, he has to take steps to improve his own security within the party. That is, and what does that mean? That means he has to clear the, the deck of rivals. He has to retrieve his authority and the primacy, his power. And this is not as easy a thing as you might think, because not only are there these young whippersnappers coming up and there's the, the betrayal perceived, not real, but perceived by people like Molotov and Zhdanov and others, but there's something else. It is absolutely insidious. And to the end of his life, he didn't know how to deal with it. All of a sudden, at the end of World War II, in an, the Soviet state has become a huge state. I mean, it's, it's really massive. How do you manage this? You can't manage it with Trotsky going off and giving speeches and Dzerzhinsky giving speeches and this and this and this and this. It's no longer a revolutionary state. It is a functioning state that functions in the way that it functions, but it nevertheless functions, and therefore it has to be administered. And in order to administer it, what do you need? You need two things. You need regularity. You need law. And you need an apparatus that is capable of administering that law, and therefore you need a bureaucracy. And so at the end of world, by the end of World War II, by 1946, the Soviet bureaucracy had grown to enormous proportions, and it had taken on a kind of life of its own, and it functioned according to what was understood to be the law. And it was understood that the people needed, I mean, it wasn't just that the government needed it, the people needed it, that you needed to know that if you brought your toaster to the hardware store on Monday, that on Wednesday, you could go back to the hardware store and it would be fixed. It's, you know, it's like a social contract. That's kind of what we're talking about. And that's what the bureaucracy was set up to do. And what does Stalin discover? He discovers that, that, that these jurists and and lawyers and people all of a sudden have fanciful notions about evidence, about facts that have to do with truth. Truth. That's a bourgeois idea, my friend. We tell you what is true. The gun tells you what is true. But all of a sudden, there are people who who, who wanted to administer the truth. And so during the, the trial of the Jewish Anti-Fascist Committee, Chip Soff, who was one of the Supreme Court justices, sends a memo to Malenkov and he says, we don't have evidence, the necessary evidence with which to convict those who have been accused of, of the crimes of the Anti-Fascist Committee. And Molotov went ballistic. He said, what are you talking? You don't have evidence. Make the evidence. Find the evidence. Well. In 1937, he wouldn't have had that conversation. He wouldn't have needed that conversation. There were troikas that would try you in 15 minutes. You didn't even have a chance to defend yourself. You had no lawyer. It was just, is this who you are? Yes. Okay, you're going to get a bullet in the head. Okay. All right. And, and that's, that would be that. But by 1946, 47, oh, you needed a trial. 
we needed to show that the Soviet Union was a normal country among normal countries. And we had to show it not just because the Soviet people demanded it, but the Poles demanded it, the Czechs demanded it, the Lithuanians demanded it. That is to say, those countries that, that Stalin had brought into the circle had made satellites. Otherwise, what's going to happen? He's going to have the, the screwy poles up in arms, and the Czechs are going to be all over him and, and, and all of this. So he's, you see, Stalin's got his problems. He's not just riding high on a wave of international acclaim and all the rest of it. And so from not, basically from around 1947 to 1949, 1950, he's casting around for ways of reconsolidating his power, for weakening the, the, the bureaucracy so that he can take it over, weakening the security state, weakening the judiciary, weakening all levers of government. and. This is this is one of his great accomplishments at this time because he, he basically succeeds in doing it. And 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 many, many, many people, and Naum have said this to me many times that in the in the 1950s, people were saying you would talk around the dinner table. We are going back to 1936. We are going back to the Great Terror. There is going to be another great purge. And how do you create a great purge? Well, the Trotskyites are pretty much gone. What, what is it that, that can, can glue the country together? In, in the 1930s, it was you were, you were a Trotskyite saboteur and you were working for the Germans. Well, that wouldn't wash today. You know, Trotsky is dead, crying out loud. And, and the Germans aren't a threat. So who's a threat? Well, looking all around, you know, Jews make up a small percentage of the Soviet population, but they're very, very visible. And people like Molotov were married to Jewish women. And there are many very influential Jewish writers and composers and thinkers and mathematicians and scientists and this and this and this and this. And furthermore, Jews are throughout and doctors and Jews are throughout Soviet society, though mainly in the big cities. And they're from top to bottom. They're teachers. They're in the Politburo. Furthermore, he has something else going for him, which is that even though the Soviet Union and Soviet citizenry is, is very positive toward Americans, in Stalin's effort at consolidating the defense of the country against the Nazis, he did one thing that was very clever. He brought the church back as a way of unifying the people. He knew that you will not fight to your death for Soviet ideology, but you will fight to the death for the motherland. And all of a sudden, words like the motherland start coming back, Rodina. All of a sudden, it's, it's Jesus Christ, and it's the, you know, the, the power of the church, and, 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 and this does... It, it works in Ukraine in particular. But with that, with bringing the church back, it also brings back the anti-Semitism of the church. And so anti-Semitism was a growing, functioning 
element within the military, within society, all over it, because the church was constantly spewing all this stuff out. And even though there were many distinguished Jewish generals, which a lot of people don't know, even though Vasily Grossman was the most lauded journalist of World War II, a Jew, even though Ilya Ehrenberg was probably the most famous journalist of the time, also a Jew, famous cinematographers, uh, David Oistrach, so many, not to mention the physicists and mathematicians that Stalin had working on the Soviet atomic bomb. Despite all of that, there was a huge amount of anti-Semitism sort of percolating in the country at the time, largely brought back up out of the pre-Soviet past by the church. And so Stalin could capitalize on that, or he thought he could capitalize on that, to turn the country against an enemy. Here's the way it, it kind of works out. The enemy is the Jewish doctors who are plotting with the help of the secret Soviet security services, Abakumov and others, to poison and, and kill members of the Politburo and ultimately Stalin himself. But they're not doing it by themselves. They're not doing it on their own. They're doing it because of the Americans. Uh-huh. And so through the Jews, you get to America. The Jews are just the conduit, you see, for turning his country around to become anti-American, for ridding himself the opposition, some of whom die under suspicious circumstances, others of whom he arrests, like Abakumov and others, and purges out of the uh, KGB or MGB at the time, thereby is able to regain the position that he felt was slipping away from him as supreme leader and as the one who is going to engineer the defense of the country in the face of this new post-World War II threat, which is not the Jews, not Israel. And this is what is so difficult, I think, for a lot of Jewish people to take. We were never really the target. We were just the means of reaching the target. He didn't care about Jews. He cared about America. And how do we know this? Well, we know of something called the Varfolomyev affair that was concocted in 1950 at the time of the Korean War that was going to be used by him to provoke a nuclear confrontation with the United States. Stalin knew something that very few people knew, and that was that the h that the Soviets were going to be able to detonate successfully an h by 1953, and they were going to therefore have nuclear parity with the United States. And then there could have been a real, and this is what, I mean, Naumov was absolutely adamant about this. He said there was a, a Cuban missile crisis that nobody even knew about. And it only resolved because Stalin died. And this was the reason that Naumov insisted as much as he did, and what we wrote in the book, which is his strong, strong view that Stalin was assassinated. He wasn't assassinated just because people didn't like him. 
he wasn't assassinated just because people had knew that they were on his list of those who were going to be purged. He was assassinated because people like Beria and Khrushchev understood that he was leading the country toward a confrontation with the United States that would lead to disaster. Ultimately, did Khrushchev undo the doctor's plot? Not Khrushchev, but Beria did. Instantly, instantly, he proclaimed in April, Stalin dies in March. In April, there is a big article, Soviet law is inviolable. See? Again, Soviet law is inviolable. And on the basis of this, he claims in the article that the security services went berserk. They were aberrant and started accusing Jewish doctors out of anti-Semitism for these hideous crimes, that they were arresting people left and right without evidence and without facts. And therefore, all 33 of the doctors that had been arrested were released, and the, uh, those who perpetrated it were arrested. They were eventually going to be shot. And the whole thing was Stalin's fault. Actually, no, he doesn't say it's Stalin's fault. The security services run amok. It was their fault. Later, Khrushchev blames the whole thing on Stalin. Very convenient. Very convenient to blame everything on Stalin. As if he and others didn't have anything to do with it. Nothing. It's like blaming everything on Trump. Blame everything. Go ahead. Blame everything. Trump is the Antichrist. Trump is this. Trump is that. But what is it that made Trump Trump? How did Trump get to be Trump? What I say to my students is it's, it's not that different. When he released the doctors, Winston Churchill, was, who was a very astute observer of all things Soviet, wrote a letter to Eisenhower. And in it, he said, you should pay attention to the curious in the doctors. I think that, that Beria is sending you a message. What was the message? He wants an accommodation. And it was. There was a window in which we could have reached an accommodation with the Soviet Union. And Eisenhower shut the window because Eisenhower didn't know what Churchill was talking about. That's that's the way it went. But it was targeted at the United States. I am absolutely convinced it was targeted at the United States in the same way that Stalin used the death of Isaac Babel, not simply to get revenge on this great Soviet Jewish writer, but rather to send a signal to this to the Germans that the Soviets are willing to negotiate, which eventually led to the Stalin Molotov, the Stalin Hitler Pact. So ultimately, the show is about films, and I'm curious: Have you ever seen this being portrayed well or at all no. in films? No, I have to say, I was sent a copy of the. Kustalyov, my car, but it was on Blu-ray and I couldn't watch it. But I, I have never seen this well portrayed because it's always portrayed in the most cliched ways, which is an anti-Jewish plot by, you know, because it's it's all been interpreted through the eyes of the Cold War and interpreted through the lens of Soviet anti-Semitism and Soviet refuseniks and 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 all of that. And in reality, it's much deeper and it's much darker than than we understand it to be, for the most part. 
You've talked a little bit about what you've worked on in the past. I'm curious what you're working on these days. Right now, I'm working on recovering from open heart surgery. And oh, wow. <laughs> when, I, when I'm done working on that, which is a big project, let me tell you, it's yep. a little thing. When I'm done with that, I'm going to turn my attention on, in fact, what I just alluded to, which is the death of Isaac Babel, which oh. is also completely, in my view, misunderstood. My argument is what I've just outlined to you, which, which is that Babel was arrested and shot in January 1940. He was arrested in May 1939, largely because of Soviet-German relations at the time. I would love to be able to go back to Russia and do more research on the doctor's plot and on Stalin but the archives are closed. It's, it's such a painful thing. And you, you really can't do independent research there now. Professor Brent, your students are so fortunate to have you. You have kept me just so enwrapped <laughs> over just not even an hour. I can't even imagine sitting in a lecture with you. It would be such a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. This has been fantastic. Okay. I hope it's useful to you. did you get involved with Cristelli of My Car? I had a production company since 75. I produced a, a lot of films for TV, mostly. Some for theater, too. And I, I produced 10 films in Russia, starting from... Uh, uh, it's, it was a kind of uh, story of revolution. And when I was producing that film in Leningrad in that time, it was not uh, yet uh, Saint Petersburg, I met Alexei German and, and uh, I, 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 I told him I'm very interested by, uh, by Kostalyov, so if I can do something, uh, I'm okay for, to produce it. That's all. Where did you first meet Alexei German? In uh, Leningrad Studios. One day, a common friend, friend of us, organized a meeting and I saw Alexei for the first time and before that in um, in 75 there was in Paris retrospective of the uh, three films of uh, Alexei I was very amazed by uh, these three films and uh, that's the reason why we we start to to talk about uh, these three films and <laughs> After that, um, I, I was involved in this production. This was in 88, and the film was screened came in a Cannes Festival in 98. So this was a 10 years uh, long story. 
I heard that the film was almost an American co-production with Dustin Hoffman in it. Is that true? No, not at all. It's a French-Russian production, mostly French, because the CNC put a, and Arte put a lot of money in uh, the production of this scene all along these 10 years, because each time to ask to Arte and CNC to give me some more money in order to, to finish uh, this film. It sounds like this was awful difficult to get made. Yes, but uh, for instance, Alexis German doesn't want to use a video. So he was rehearsing in studio outside speaking to the uh, cameraman, speaking to the actors, what he want exactly. Rehearse, rehearse, rehearse. Maybe one shot or two, no more. After that, the screening in the, um, of the rushes, he look, he, he look at it, this is good, this is not good. But uh, we had to re-film uh, re, um, it. So uh, it was uh, like that uh, all the long time. What was it like to work with Mr. Gehrman? I like it. <laughs> I made a documentary all along the, the, the making of, if, if, if you want. I think you can see it somewhere. I was in Russia, let's say, twice a month with my camera. I shoot uh, every time I was there. And so this making of is, is quite interesting, in fact. Yes, I think the best way to find that is, is to contact with Arte France. Arte, they must have a copy of it. I read that the film was not so well-received when it came out. No, it's completely true. When the film was... Uh, I can... Uh, Martin Scorsese was the president of the Film Cannes Festival that year. A friend of mine was in the jury. And when uh, the, the screening was starting, Scorsese said, Oh, we got the pan. <laughs> that was the first hold. But after that, my friend said to me that he, 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 he has not understood the film. And I must say, I was there, of course. I must say that during the screening, everybody was leaving <laughs> the screening room. It was terrible, terrible. <laughs> The critics in the FIAO were very good, but in Liberation and Le Monde, awful. Actually, I, I, I can say that unique in the French press, when the film was screened in Paris in October, after the film festival, Le Monde and Liberation said, we are sorry, we were wrong. In Cannes, this film is a masterpiece. It was not, uh, the, the critics who saw the film in Cannes were not really, they never know anything about Alexis German, neither Russian uh, cinema. 
Gearman's style is very different from anything I've ever seen with his long takes and roving camera. Actually, it was a real problem for the subtitles because Alexei, during this sequence, everybody in the background of the of the frame or in the front speaks, and Alexei says each word is important. But for the subtitles. If you don't understand, uh, speak uh, Russian, it's impossible. You have to choose uh, between the subtitle of the of, of the end of the screen of of the first uh, man in the front. It's, it was very complicated. What were some of your other memories of making the film? Other memories. <sighs> It's a ten years a story, you know. <laughs> when the film was screened in Cannes, this is uh, I like uh, Alexis. Don't forget that. But, uh, he was absolutely sure to 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 get uh, to to add uh, the golden pan, and uh, it was not the case. <laughs> he was not a pen. He's a Russian people. He, 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 he told me, "What do you do with the jury? You can buy it." <laughs> Alexei German was during the Soviet period the only one of the rare directors not uh, inscribed in the Communist Party. That's the reason why he made uh, six films in uh, 40 years. I can't imagine how close you came to making the film multiple times over a 10-year period. You know, the father of Alexei, it was very, very amazed by this. He loved, he, 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 he loved it, but it was one of the uh, Sovietic writer officials. And this was a real problem for uh, for Alexei. Because uh, he was not an, 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 a party member of Alexei. He has never been, been, been in the party. With the scene featuring the death of Stalin, were there any problems with the Soviet authorities over that? I don't know. I don't know because uh, I had a lot of of discussion with Alexei on that scene, Alexei told me this is the way Stalin uh, died. <laughs> I don't know. There is a lot of discussion about the death of uh, Stalin. One thing is sure, he died slowly because nobody wants to awake him. So he was laying in the commandibia. But there is a lot uh, of discussion about the death of Stalin. But the good idea of Alexei is that the, um, the doctor who was sodomized in this uh, car hmm, was called back to save Stalin. Did you ever think about working with German again? No. For his last film, come on, difficile it's difficult to 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 be a god. He asked me several times to come in uh, in Saint Petersburg uh, in, in that time, have a look on the rushes and film extent. 
And uh, we had a discussion, a lot of discussion with Vetlana, his wife. And because this film is, is not very, it is too much, in fact, in my opinion. It's a kind, uh, it's a kind of exaggeration of uh, Khrushchev. I must tell you something. At the very beginning, very beginning of the film, of the uh, my work with uh, Alexei, uh, I asked him to shoot the film in color for commercial reason, of course. So, and there, uh, I had the rushes of this uh, some, somewhere. He, in, uh, he, he, he made a scene, the scene when um, the young boy with the, the two li- little Jews, we are uh, in the, yes, you know, he opened a door and a lot of flowers. And this scene, we, we shoot him the first time in color. It was, I was very amazed, but uh, I think, in fact, Alexis was right. Because they, I don't know how to say that in English, because it was more dramatic in uh, in uh, in black and white than in color, more interesting in in black and white than in color. It was a quite uh, a fascinating uh, experience. Yes, I was the last shot when the the, the general is on uh, the wagon uh, with the snow. And and and, and uh, on the, the east side of the train. When we shoot that, I was there. The, the cameraman forgot to uh, put enough uh, film in the camera. If you, <laughs> there are Russian people. Huh? Don't forget that. <laughs> when we had, when Alexei saw the Russians. Suddenly, no film. He was in a, he was, what happened? And then so on, etc. And he said, I will wait the next winter to reshoot it. That means, that means one year. <laughs> this year, for one time, over ten years, no snow in Russia. <laughs> No problem. We, uh, no, 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 no. I, I want to shoot it again, and I must say, uh, Zetana, his wife, and I, we, we, we said, keep the 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 the, the shot, uh, the sequence with the snow, even it's it's cutted too soon. But you must. Say, it was days of discussion, but. Finally, we, uh, Zetana and I, we, uh, we, we, uh, we, uh, we had a successful to, uh, to Alexei. And another thing, funny, mixing. You must know, in Linfin, the mixing room are close to laundry machine. <laughs> So, when Alexis was starting uh, mixing, everything was fine till the laundry machine started. 
this was uh, always the Soviet uh, problem. Oh, it's a good thing uh, to put some laundry machine here. <laughs> this, uh, all the events then uh, take 10 years. <laughs> was all the dialogue recorded post-sync? Uh, yes, everything. When the laundry machine was were not working. <laughs> Are you still making films or have you retired? No, no I'm retired. I made uh, two short films uh, recently, but uh, yes, but a uh, 30-minute film, one about uh, Joseph Kessel, a um, French writer, quite known, but... Uh, and then another one about, um, I don't know the word, actually, but I'm retreated, it's like, yes. Did you make those films during the pandemic? I don't know, no, no, I, I, the two of these short films were one uh, last year, yes, uh, 20 and 19. Mr. Seligman, thank you so much for your time. No, no, you're welcome. Bye-bye. All right, we are back, and we are talking about Love, My Car. You mentioned, Gianna, the short story that this is based on. And it was interesting because it's... It's really loosely based on, I think it's more the idea of writing about that period and the whole idea of the voiceover looking at the past kind of thing, but it's a fantastic short story, and I'm so glad that you sent that along. Yeah, Gammon had a few different literary sources, and they all sort of deal with loss and abandonment and betrayal and the incomplete nature of memory, all of which are, of course, really relevant themes to people witnessing the collapse of the world, the system that they've grown up with in the 90s in Russia. It was interesting, too. So the, the name of the story is uh, In a Room and a Half by Joseph Brodsky. And he talks around the things that he did in order to basically make him have to leave the country or get booted out of the country. I think it was more fleeing. And he never, as far as I know, reading the story uh, last night, I never really saw the reason for it. I saw like little hints of it, but it was so much more about his childhood and really about his parents and dealing with the death of his parents when he couldn't go back and be able to see them or be with them during their last years. It was very sad, but super poignant at the same time. Brodsky was a dissident writer who was uh, two years younger than German, and he was actually first arrested um, and then exiled internally. And then when he came back to Leningrad, he he was party to um, punitive psychiatry, which was a, a way of keeping dissidents quiet and institutionalized. Um, and then after that, um, he was deemed of no use to the Soviet Union. And he was asked to emigrate to Israel. He refused. He, his place was in the USSR. And so when he refused, he was rounded up, put on a plane, uh, and I think went to Vienna and then eventually to New York, where he would write and get, you know, honorary doctorates from Yale and the Nobel Prize. So it's not, it's not all sad. Wow. Yeah. The punitive psychology thing, so the, or psychiatry thing, when General Klemsky is in that place where they're, uh, where he meets his double, I was immediately on guard because I've talked about this before when it comes to different films where it's like 
You go into an asylum, you never come out. You go into this place and the doctors say, okay, yeah, you're going to stay here for a while. And I've talked about that with several things like Murder by Sweet or, um, uh, again, going back to In the Fifth Horseman is Fear. And so I thought for sure, you know, here I am. I'm super smart, right? I'm super, I'm smarter than this movie. Mm-mm, no. <laughs> this movie's never going to do what I think it's going to do. So he just manages to walk right out of there. He's still the man about town, even though he's meeting his double. And I'm just like, oh, wow. And I'm again, I'm still waiting for the double to come back and all of these things. And nope, that's not going to happen. But yeah, I was I was really afraid that he was going to be subjected to uh, punitive psychiatry. Definitely. Yeah. And I think that that's reflected too in Brodsky's essay, because he, he, at some point, like he just throws in that the theme of his essay is the transition from freedom to slavery at the hands of the state and the effects of this transition on children who lose their parents in the process. And like General Klensky, Brodsky's dad, with his disconcertingly bald head, was just like the general in the sense that because of anti-Semitism, um, that Brodsky's dad also lost his job and had to start life again at 47 on foot. And of course, Brodsky and the family in the film both have Russian and Jewish identities. Um, and there are a couple other couple other sort of symbolic moments where Brodsky's source text can be a kind of lexicon. Like we can link the the black crows that watched the general before his meeting with Stalin to crow as a slang for government cars. We see these black limousines reappear throughout the film. And, and also Brodsky has these crows that represent this like unnerving, watchful spirit of his parents um, that sort of seem haunting and like they embody death. Well, it's interesting you mentioned the, the black cars because the, the that fleet of black cars that moves along are treated almost more like animals than like people or avatars of people in the movie. The, the way that they're grouped together and they move, it was was and and the association with that dog at the beginning had me kind of thinking of that that you know recurring group of cars as as being you know a kind of animal or non-human sort of force with within the narrative that's a, a really good point especially that whole animal thing uh that we were talking about earlier one thing that that really strikes me about this film and that that i i guess on the more mythological kind of level that i really love about it is that the death of stalin in this is creating a dangerous moment that would seem to presage a better world. You know, that in, in a back to my Christmas movie point about this, which I know has got to seem immensely perverse. We put a lot onto the changing power of that, that baby being born. And in this, we were putting a lot of similar kind of mythological power upon this death. And on, on the one hand, of course, under the circumstances, the death of Stalin is, you know, generally more a good thing and in, in, in real life stopped the doctor's plot. But on another level, it's unleashing new sort of insane forces, which I also see in the sort of Christmas story. As much as we want to, be, you know, believe in this, this total change and that we have, we commemorate, you know, culturally, people commemorate this, 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 this notion of a kind of messianic figure changing the world every year. It, well, we kind of have to do it every year because the world doesn't change. And the death of Stalin is a similar kind of event here of like 
there's a good change that seems, you know, wonderful and possible. And yet we know from the history that didn't exactly occur. And again, the, the idea of the allegory coming forward in history, the good change of the Soviet Union falling, but then not necessarily delivering when, when capitalism arrives. And certainly in our particular moment, you know, while I certainly do not want to invite, you know, Trump back into the White House or those powers, I, I'm, I remain, I remain at the least skeptical about how good the change is that we have made and how, and, and whether we're out of the woods and, and all of that. So this is another level where it really, it really spoke to me on a kind of mythic basis of our, our expectations around distinct historical moments and this kind of birth death idea. You know, and that death idea also doesn't just, it's not just an opposite, uh, of the, you know, sort of Christmas Christ story yeah. about birth. It's also very yeah. important to traditional myths and rituals of the king dying and sort of reviving the land, you know, those kind of Fisher King myths as well. So all of, all of that really comes to play even within this movie that is, uh, you know, in, in, in other respects is not kind of reducing. We've again thinking about reducing to the mythic. This is finding the mythic amidst a great complexity and grittiness. Masha Gessen writes, like, in building a totalitarian system, the need to instill terror overpowered all other needs, even economic ones. And it's interesting to see, like, how that terror becomes economic in the 90s and how it changes shape throughout the 70s and 80s. And German, it's it's interesting to see in German's films how things get worse and worse and worse the closer we get to the present day because each of his films is an allegory, especially the final two. And the last one is hard to be a god. And it's set in this like medieval allegory for Putin's Russia. Whereas Alexei German Jr., Alexei German's son, is also a very accomplished filmmaker. And he shares a lot of his dad, a lot of his dad and mom's um, tools for filmmaking and a lot of their goals. But his films are much more fatalistic. He seems to be saying, we're returning to the past, but but we're just stuck in this cycle. Like it's not that things got worse. It's that this is where we've always been and this is where we are. So it's kind of sad in that sense. His films are brilliant, by the way. You should check them out. They're really, really good. He's about, he's like mid forties and he's already made five features. Um, and they're incredibly detailed in terms of world building. They all open with a voiceover narration, like his dad's films. They're really cool. Yeah, you mentioned German's wife, um, Sletvana Karmalita, and she is one of those uh, ladies who was so important to the films. It's like, uh, you know, we, we talked uh, when we were talking about Hitchcock, about how important Hitchcock's wife was to his films, and Svetlana was a screenwriter, and right there with him on all of this stuff and even seeing like shots from when they were filming, like she's right there with him. So these are very much their films, not necessarily just Garman's films. Right. Yeah. And she was also his screenwriter and his shooting partner. Exactly. And his, uh, his son too also has a partner who is also his wife, who's a really accomplished costume and production designer. And they spend a really long time meticulously building the worlds of this, their films and, um, their films also focus on the capacity for moral action and psychological survival in historical and social environments that undermine these things. Um, many of his films are set in the past, but even among those set in the present, you get the sense that to be a good person is to be in conversation with the past, to maintain memory as a painful but necessary act of defiance um, in this world in which the past, our narratives about the past, our mythology about the past is really malleable and being manipulated. 
like Peter Pomerantsev says, like nothing is true and everything is possible. German Jr.'s Russia is full of these really murky, misty landscapes where characters and absurd objects just like appear and disappear amid ruins. And he's he's also clear that like j- recreating the past isn't an end in itself. Uh, he says, for me, capturing the image of an era isn't the priority. What's important is to capture people who live through difficulties and try to stand up for themselves. So again, there's this focus on agency. It's really cool. It's cool that his films are not pastiches of his parents' films. He's just like been this young guy who grows up in sort of like artistic royalty and he just unselfconsciously picks up some of his parents' tools and uses them in his own way for his own purposes. And they tend to be much easier rides aesthetically than his dad's. Like there's less shit flying in your face, less things like knocking against the camera, but they are, I think, equally as emotionally difficult because they're e- easier rides aesthetically. They they tend to win like lots of awards in foreign ceremony and foreign uh, film festivals and stuff like that. I did finally see The Death of Stalin today. Um, I meant to watch it a long time ago because I think it's been out for a couple of years now and I finally caught up with it. And, uh, I agree with you, Spencer. It's very, it's, it's a very funny film, kind of delightful. My wife, uh, afterwards was like, is that fiction or is that real? And I was like, unfortunately, a lot of it is real stuff. You know, obviously it's fictionalized, but I was like, yeah, the thing that they were talking about with not having any doctors around and they were talking about this one woman. I was like, I think that she was the one who was responsible for the doctor's plot and just, you know, the, the anesthesiologist or whoever it was that kind of like finger different people. And I'm like, so yeah, there's real things going on in there. Obviously, you know, it, it's made to be a little bit more comedic than probably real life was, but I think it's just that absurdism. And I love a good absurdist comedy. And the man, Death of Stalin was completely absurd. Well, and I prefer the Death of Stalin, Armando Iannucci's other stuff, which I find very funny, but the high, high stakes make the, that, that sort of comedy of pettiness much more interesting to me. And, you know, it does like, his his other work wears out its welcome pretty quickly for me. Like, it, yes, it's very funny and I will laugh, but there's there's only so much that I want to see of the pettiness of the people in, in Veep. Whereas the death of Stalin works a bit better for me because the comedy is rooted in utter terror. And, and that, in fact, the terror comes home in, in particular ways that I think are great and memorable, you know, because of the way that they're presented as funny. But it, it's interesting because quite a lot of the things that happen, for instance, in Death of Stalin, if you put it in a Terry Gilliam sort of Brazil environment would be like, oh, ha ha, that's, a, you know, parody or satire on totalitarianism. But a lot of the things that come across as, as, you know, that get played as kind of funny are for real, you know, <laughs> real things that happen to real people. I mean, the, the sickly moment for for instance, in Death of Stalin, where they're deciding to kill all these people that have shown up as mourners because they can't deal with the sheer numbers and, and throngs. You know, it's it's like you're just that that turn of fiction away from it being, you know, strictly a joke. But the way in which it's both a joke and not a joke at all, I, I, that, that absurdity is, uh, I think, so important to experience. But again, that said, I like that movie quite a lot. But man, in comparison with Kristalyov, my car, 
I ju- it's it, it it just strikes me as like so Western and myopic, and its vision of power being so crabbed. Ultimately, very useful, but you know this 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 is like this is a really great movie, and that's you know a very a very solid watch that I'll probably see again. And I appreciate the tone that it brings to bear. But we're just talking about different worlds. Definitely, yeah. I I, I like Armando Yanucci. <sighs> His brand of comedy, right? It involves men and occasionally women in a position of power, like sitting in a room and shouting at each other, right? And that works so well in the thick of it, which is a comedy about cabinet ministers in Britain. But it ignores the systemic, pervasive mechanisms of power involved in state terror, which in which everyone was to some extent complicit, right? And and in Death of Stalin showing violence is stemming from like this bad boy, right? Like we have Beria ordering hits and interrupting his hits to go gang rick some incarcerated women, right? Like this ignores the systemic nature and encompassing nature of state terror. Like these were real crimes that didn't stem from one or two comic sadists shouting at each other in a room. Like terror was an environment. And when we have simple clear-cut villains and victims And when everything's treated really lightly, like for me, it rings false and it stops being a film about Stalinism. Um, And Samuel Goff, I hope I'm pronouncing his name right. He writes really well about this in the Calvert Journal. And he also talks about like the ways that Yanucci like abandoned history to get his shouty men in a room together. Like apparently when when Stalin died, like Molotov had been fired like a long time back and Zhukov was demoted. And um, but Yanucci toys with all that stuff. But. I think for me, the failings of the death of Stalin just point to the need for films that deal with the real absurdity and the real senselessness of life under totalitarianism and the strategies that people adopted to survive. And I think Kristalyev My Car does this. And there are so many other like funny, upsetting, but still really funny and absurd films made about Stalinism by Russians, um, especially in the 80s and 90s. Like Sergei Livnyev's film Hammer and Sickle from 1994, and I'd really encourage people to to seek those out. Yeah, and I can't um, stress enough how much I would recommend people watch Kristeliev My Car because um, we were talking before we started to record. Just it's so easy to find now. You know, I talked about the Arrow Blu-rays out there, very easy to find. But before that, it was difficult. You, you know, uh, Gianna, you talked about how you saw a really shitty VHS version of it. Well, we don't have to worry about that anymore. There's a beautifully restored. I mean, and this film is gorgeous, and the amount of extras and the quality of the extras is fantastic. Really can't recommend it enough. And yeah, I picked it up for really cheap over at Arrow when they were having a sale. I think even if you want to watch it on Amazon Prime, it's two bucks to rent, 10 bucks to buy. I would recommend that you buy it because you're going to want to watch this film more than one time just to even begin to glean what's going on. It takes a while to even, you know, we said this before to get into the rhythm of the film and you're going to want to see it a few times. Yeah, I definitely want to see it again. Maybe not immediately because I just watched it twice in the last 24 hours and it's a, it's a rough go, but I, I definitely plan to be watching this film a number of times again. It's really rewarding. I had this week where I just watched all of German's films in succession and I had this, I'm really obsessive like that, but I had this, um, this moment, this was before the pandemic where I was just like on a train or I was at my uh, sister-in-law's house and just seeing the way that people overlap with their language, the way kids run around and the, the household objects that they really played with. And I just, I felt like the world doesn't make that much more sense 
than a German script, than a German film. And it, I couldn't tell if it made me feel warmer toward German's success in recreating a world, or if it made me feel slightly more alienated about the world that I was in. But it, it's, it's affecting. His films really get inside your head, and it's, it's an incredibly exhilarating experience. And I just don't think other cinema does this. Like, even when his films are upsetting, they're worth it. This is this is cinema that doesn't come around every day. I mean, I know I keep using the word generosity, but it isn't just generosity towards the characters and towards this world. It is a real generosity to the audience to, you know, to invite us along into this thing. And, and I, I don't know. I just, I, I, again, I, I feel like this kind of, you know, generosity is really rare and, you know, needs, needs to be celebrated more. And that quite a lot of our artistic celebration is, is around the, the opposite. We celebrate so much work for its withholding and for its ellipses and for, you know, <laughs> on the worst kind of cases, kind of, uh, stylish and and modish mi- minimalism and a movie like this that is the opposite it's not just that it's some big mess or a giant plate of spaghetti that's dropped in front of us it's it's that it's really going to give and keep giving and i i, I really appreciate that i think the stereotype we have of russian film from the west is that it's going to be really austere um like zviaginsev for example i get really a bored with those kinds of films and so for me it's always it's always satisfying to see the the german or the zhuovsky you know someone who is just throwing their heart at the screen and and being elegant but inadvertently so and i agree with what you said generosity i think is a really great way to describe these films and i think german would be really surprised to hear us say this because whenever his films premiered in the west he was really surprised by the way that people didn't really get any impression of the ideas that were in the films instead they would just be like oh that moment was nice or like oh i like that trick that you did with the gun and and it really put him off <laughs> he was just like they're not going to get it and fair enough I've known about this movie for a number of years because of Jay Hoberman's writing about it. But for whatever reason, I wasn't remembering as we went into this that it was hated at Cannes in 98. And, I, I, you know, I, I don't I don't really revere Cannes. So that's not an issue. But the, there's just thinking about that at the at the end of watching this movie for the first time. It made me mad. It was kind of like, oh, this is this is like the big deal festival, and everybody decides they hate this movie. This is the one we're going to pile up on in a given year. Like, fuck that. I want to look at like a list of what else was playing at Con that year and be like, uh, yeah, this was way worse. You know, I'm sure that there were way worse things going on there. Yeah, you know, I mean, I I admire a number of movies that were hated at Cannes, but generally it's kind of, you know, so so for instance, I'm a huge fan of Crash. It's my favorite David Cronenberg movie, of course, not the Oscar-winning Crash. And that that was very controversial and, you know, raised lots of hackles, but it's like, yeah, okay, I get it. And let's rumble. That that sort of thing makes sense. A movie like this if Cannes cannot, you know, rise to the occasion and that and mass people are deciding that this kind of movie is bad. I just I don't know what to do. Listen to this first sentence here. Um the festival opened, this is about the 51st Con 98. The festival opened with Primary Colors directed by Mike Nichols. And closed with Godzilla, directed by Roland Emmerich. And you know what? I never want to watch either of those movies ever again. Well, it's funny because the movie we're talking about next week is also played in 1998 Con. I had no idea that that was the case. So, 
there was one country that he felt like got his films outside of of the former Soviet space, and that was Italy. And he said that about Kristolyev, my car, he said, my film there was playing all over the place, including in an ancient circus. And I love that. I love that it got there. All right, guys, let's go ahead and take a break, and we're going to play a preview for next week's show. Son zamanlarda dünyayla tek bağlantım şu bilinmeyen karşı pencere bana hep aynı müzikle karşılık veren kim bu? Nasıl biri? Bir sabah onu bulmaya çıkmıştım. Ama sonra bir daha düşündüm. Belki de bilmemek ve hayal etmek daha iyidir. Benim gibi bir müzevi olabilir miydi? Ya da belki küçük bir kız çocuğu. Okula gitmeden önce bilinmez bir oyun oynayan. Her şey çok çabuk gelişti. Şu şüphe uyandırıcı ağrı. Öğrenmek için inat edişim, bilmek isteyişim. Sonra da karanlık. Etrafımı saran sessizlik. Sessizlik. Her şey bizi kış gelmeden önce teknelerin gölgeleri üzerine vuran uykudaki güneşin aniden açmasını sağlayarak aşıkları dışarı uğratan riyakar bağrın verdiği sözlere inanmaya itiyor. Kış gelmeden önceki her şeye inanmaya itiyor. Tek üzüntüm anne. Acaba tek mi? O hiçbir şeye son vermek zorunda değil. Her şey, her şey ana hatları içinde kalmalı. Kelimeler itinayla seçilmeli. That's right, we'll be back next week with a look at Theo Angelopoulos' Eternity and a Day. So there you go. That was another Con 98 film, which I had no idea. It was. It's another request, and just happened to have two films from 98 that played in Con. So there you go. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Gianna and Spencer. So Gianna, what is keeping you busy these days? Well, I'm an editor, and I also research and occasionally write about film, mainly from Central Europe and the former Soviet space, and particularly film made by women. I particularly enjoy films made by women that question gender stereotypes, but they don't need to. I'm mostly just interested in what women are up to um, when they make films. Um, I'm taking this year off to, to research. My goal is to become much more familiar with representations of female agency and desire and spectatorship in cinema from these areas of the world. And I also want to better understand the context in which these films are produced and received so that I can have a more nuanced analysis that's much broader than just what I would bring as any feminist from the West. Um, I'm really enjoying my research so far. I'm completely in love with Russian cinema at the moment. Um, and I'm coming up with lots of ideas for pieces and directors I'd love to interview. So I'm, uh, as I said, I'm taking a, a year off of writing this year. But I'll hopefully be interviewing the Hungarian filmmaker Ildiko Anyedi later this year for the Calvert Journal, 
which I'm really excited about. They've been wonderful so far. Excellent. Well, I don't want to put you on the spot, but I would love to have you back on in 2022 to talk more about uh, some Russian films. Oh, that'd be amazing. I have so many ideas, but I won't. I'll, I'll email you later. Okay, fantastic. And Spencer, what's the latest with you, sir? Well, I'm vaccinated and I'm planning to make a movie this summer if I can get together a crew that's also vaccinated. We were supposed to make it last summer and, you know, there, you know, you know how that went. But yeah, hopefully, hopefully we can, we can make a, a gnarly little horror story about somebody invading people's minds this summer. That's, that's a, that's my hope, my dream, my vaccination, my crossed fingers. And so that's, that's the main thing I'm working on. Thank you so much, folks, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find a link over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps a projection booth take over the world.
Mm-hmm.